Hello, and welcome back to Real, uh, a special edition of uh, a, a joint show of Real Seekers with me, uh, Dale the Real Seeker, and I'm joined by... David the Skeptic. Welcome to yet another episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by... You know what? This is this is ridiculous. You 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 lead. It's okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, so excellent. So yeah. So as you can tell, audience, we're doing a, a joint show. Um, so I, I'm been accepted to uh, the masters a masters of philosophy program. So that's starting up in September, and and obviously I'm uh, gonna have less time for doing you know new podcasts. Though I will try to every now and then throw something up there, and I've, I've got the the SNS archive to go through for people. Um, but yeah, before before that starts, in August, I'm trying to go out with a bang, and I wanted to have another conversation with uh, with David uh, as a joint show here. And in terms of picking a topic, um, so I thought it'd be interesting for the audience to know that I've changed my mind on a certain issue. Um, and it's an issue that uh, David and I have spoken about quite a lot, uh, namely, the skeptical argument that the book of Genesis, in terms of its creation account, is an error. Um, and in the past, I, I've been happy to admit on, on multiple shows, yeah, I, I think it very probably is an error. And that doesn't affect my Christian faith. Um, however, I, having looked into it now, I've actually changed my mind on this front, on a balance of probabilities. I don't think the skeptic can prove this is an error. Um, so, so what you're saying is you once thought you were wrong, but you were mistaken. Yes, it's <laughs> wrong about being wrong. Uh, um, so, yes, uh, so exactly. So, so in terms of this show, there's going to be two elements that I've broken it up to. So, I think that there are at least two essential premises or two essential components for a skeptic to, to be able to prove that look, Genesis is in fact an error on, on in terms of God's creating the creating the earth and the solar system, uh, as well possibly with the age of the earth, uh, as opposed, you know, it being 6,000 as opposed to uh, 4.5 billion years old. Um, so those two elements are going to be, number one, obviously the skeptic has to prove, well, what is, factually speaking, what is the age of the earth? And then Aspect number two is going to be, well, what does does the Bible contradict that? Does the Bible say that it's not designed by God or that it, or sorry, it's not formed naturally or that it's not 4.5 billion years old and is, in fact, designed by God and is much younger than that? So, you know, those are the two elements that the skeptic are saying contradict each other. Um, just before I, I, I guess, get into my opening case, David, w would you agree uh, with me that yeah, if a skeptic is trying to make this argument, that these at least these two elements are essential for the success of that argument. Uh, you know, as much as I've thought about this, I haven't actually thought about that particular question. Uh, I, 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 intuition says, yeah, I think. Uh, I think that's reasonable. You know, if you're saying that the Bible is in error about whatever, you the first thing I, I would actually argue, the first thing you need to show is that the Bible actually said that thing uh, that you said it said. Yeah. Um, and then you have to show that the thing that 
it said is an error. So I, I think if that's the question, I would I would have to say yes. Perfect. Okay. Um, all right. So so yeah, I guess we'll get straight into it at this point. And I'll give my opening case um, as quickly as I can for for David's benefit, because I know he doesn't enjoy long intros. So no, no, no. Let's... Take your time. I actually this is. <laughs> um, this is it's okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> because I, I think that you have a lot of um, things in here that people are going to have to maybe listen to a second time and or look up and, um, you know, and so uh, depending on how detailed you get, I, I, I think that you would be doing a disservice if you uh, shortcut at the information. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Perfect. So. Um, the first thing I want to do is I want to look at each of these elements and explain what, why, have, why has Dale changed his mind uh, on this front. So the, let's take the second element first. So that, you know, what does the Bible actually say? Um, does it actually teach the earth is young? It's 6,000 to 10,000 years old. Um, does it uh, actually teach that it's a special creation or a, a divine design in some respect? Um, and on this front, I don't think we can actually prove. I think I'm, I'm only 45% convinced that we can prove that the uh, text of Genesis is actually teaching these things. Um, and the reason I think this on an interpretational level is based on the genre of the text. So I agree with, I'm going to agree with David. I, I have always said I thought that the best interpretation of the Genesis text is the literal historical genre. It is literal historical truth. And once you're once you're given that, the days are probably meant to be 24 hour days. And, and you know, it gives us an age with the genealogies of about six to 10,000 years old. I think that is the best explanation given that genre. However, recently I've been convinced that actually Chapter, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are not the literal historical genre um, in the same way that the rest of Genesis is. It's actually what's called mytho-history. Um, and once you have mytho-history in the mix, well, then you, can't, you don't take the text literally. You, you, can, you don't have to say, oh, was there a talking snake? Uh, how old is the earth? And that sort of thing. So in the first place, what is mytho-history? So mytho-history is a secular scholar. Secular scholars have identified uh, this genre of text in ancient Near Eastern literatures. Um, actually, uh, an Assyriologist um, whose name is Dr. Th uh, Thorkild Jacobson, and he was the first to identify this unique genre known as mytho-history based on studying a Babylonian text called the Eridu Genesis, and he identified certain features uh, within the text that are common to other ancient Near Eastern texts that fit this genre. So in the first place, there are um, mythical elements, right? You know, the flood, creation, um, the story of, of the creation of man and how they got their place uh, in, in a lot of ancient Near Eastern texts, it's the, the formation of the kingship over the, over the land and that sort of thing and how the gods set up the system and that sort of thing. So these are, you know, typical things that are part of myths. Ancient, they're common to ancient Near Eastern myths. But there's a twist because there's also a historical interest that's been identified. And these are identified in things like the genealogies and these uh, 
these specific king lists and that sort of thing that are um, evident in these texts. So there's there's an interest on the part of the author to ground the mythical elements of a story in actual historical figures and genuine historical events, but they couch it in the language of, of myth uh, and that sort of thing. So that's what the genre is, and it's been identified, as I said, in non-biblical ancient Near Eastern texts. So the question becomes, okay, well, is the Bible actually this genre? And it'll surprise people. Most Old Testament, even evangelical biblical scholars, uh, like Gordon Wenham, for example, they say, yes, it, this is mytho-history. It's not literal history. And as I said, it's important to note that mytho-history is not the same as just pure myth. We're not saying the Bible is just pure made-up myth. It has this historical focus. Adam and Eve were real people. The main essential events like the fall uh, were literal history and that sort of thing. But it's the elements of it, how it tells that story uh, in terms of the details like the snake and the tree and that sort of thing. Those aren't necessarily uh, historical. Um, but how do we identify the Bible as being mytho-history? So in, in the first place, um, it fits the form of this literary genre. Um, you know, it deals with the flood, it deals with the creation and formation of mankind from God and, and that sort of thing. Um, and the rulership over the earth, uh, as well the fall and that sort of thing, the fall of man into this lesser than ideal state uh, from this golden age. Um, but at the same time, it also has genealogies in it. it. It has lists of kings, the tables of the nations and that sort of thing. So. It shows that the author of Genesis is, in fact, interested in uh, grounding his work in historical figures and essential historical events, um, but he's couching it in these common themes of his time. And basically, the, there are various arguments that uh, scholars give as to why, beyond just the form, why we can identify Genesis as this genre. Um, but I'll give the two that were the most convincing to me, because I do think that young earth creationists can counter um, most of the reasons given, the, the specific reasons. The two ones that were decisive for me were the following. So number one, the talking snake has to be a myth. It cannot be literal history. Um, and the reason for this is just read the text of Genesis it, itself. It's, it's obvious that the... Um, the snake is a beast of the field, and it, it's ascribing mental properties to this beast. First of all, it can talk, um, but it's also why it's the wiliest of all the beasts of the field. And most Christians will try to say, "Yeah, but that's because it's not a real snake." If you read this literally, it's it's Satan in the form of a snake, or it's Satan possessing a, a literal snake, or something like this. But I, that's reading something into the text. If you just read Genesis, it doesn't identify the, uh, the snake as Satan in any way. There's no explicit association there. Um, there is no um, mention of a supernatural cause of the snake's talking in any way. Like, in, But with Balaam's ass, for example, or donkey, for example, in Numbers, it specific, the text specifically says the Lord supernaturally opened up or miraculously opened up the mouth of the donkey. So there's nothing like this in Genesis. It's just 
telling it straight up. Hey, there was a snake. The snake was the craftiest of all the beasts that God had created on, on the earth. He, he shows up in the garden. He starts talking and convinces Adam and Eve to fall. And as a punishment, the snake, it, it's the curse on the snake is seems to be an ideological description of why do snakes slither on their bellies? You know, well, God cursed them. Um, so it, it seems to be that Genesis is talking about a literal snake. Um, however, the mythic part is I do think that this is symbolic of Satan. So I think that it's history that Satan was involved in tricking Adam and Eve. He wasn't in the form of a snake or anything like that. Uh, in one form or another, he, he was involved in tricking uh, Adam and Eve to sin. And this is why we get illusions in Revelation, calling Satan the great serpent and that sort of thing, connecting it to this Genesis account. So that's my first reason. Um, my second main reason, and I'll let David come back. We'll, we'll address each topic separately, I guess, so, so it's not talking too long. But the second reason is the cherubim. So after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God stations angels known as cherubim to guard, you know, with a flaming sword to guard the tree of life and the tree of, uh, you know, to guard the garden. Humankind, you're, you're separated from God. That's your punishment. And these cherubim are, are there guarding uh, the garden. Well, cherubim cannot be, on a balance probably, they cannot be real literal history because cherubim don't exist. They aren't real beings that exist in heaven. And the reason we get to this that I find convincing is, look, cherubim, the Jews, the second commandment, right? Thou shalt not make any idols uh, on anything in heaven or on earth or in the seas below. Um, Jews were prohibited strictly. I mean, you were killed if you did this. Um, you were killed for picking up sticks, for crying out loud. So if you used idols or images of anything, anything in heaven or earth um, in the context of worship, that was a death offense. You cannot do that. Only God should be worshipped uh, without the use of any images or anything like that. However, guess what? In the context of worship within the temple, within the Holy of Holies itself, the Ark of the Covenant has images of these cherubim. And most scholars will say, well, this, well, isn't this a, a violation of the second commandment? And the best explanation, in my opinion, is no, because these are not real creatures that exist in heaven or on earth. They're mythical creatures. Cherubim do, are just mythical creatures. And we know about this from uh, ancient Near Eastern culture. Cherubim are not unique to the Bible. They exist. I've seen them literally in the British Museum. Uh, they're, you know, huge creatures with lion, lion bodies and eagle's wings and a human head. And they're massive things that guard Assyrian temples, uh, pagan temples and that sort of thing. And we know in that context, they're definitely mythical creatures. Um, so, yeah, that's why I think it's the best explanation if, if they were literal creatures um, that existed in heaven, angels that existed in heaven, they wouldn't be able to represent them in the Holy of Holies as, as image or idols, um, you know. And, okay, well, if those cherubim are mythical creatures, then that means the story in Genesis of them guarding thing has to be mythical. It can't be literal history because they don't exist. Um, so, yeah, I'll leave it there. That For that first aspect um, of what the text itself says, those are my two reasons as to why I've changed my mind and think that Genesis is, in fact, mytho-history. So, yeah, David, I'll, I'll turn it to you. We can go back and forth or give your opening speech on that aspect. 
Well, actually, let me. Um, yeah, let me let me just start with um, mytho history uh, as a genre. Okay. Uh, so I don't respect uh, mytho history as a genre. I'm not suggesting that it's not a genre per se, but I it, it feels like a genre contrived to rescue something uh, rather than a genre. Uh, that's describing a thing in a, in a better effort to understand it. Uh, so I can't speak to the actual or origins of the mytho history genre. I can I can talk about it uh, in the same way that most people can. I can I can look up facts on Wikipedia. I can say that it was uh, you know first discussed by a, a 19th century um, um, expert on literature or what have you i mean it's 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 fairly irrelevant though as as a genre i i think it's kind of um uh dis dishonorable um it's not for instance the same as um uh he hagiography I'm sorry, folks. My my brain is a little bit slow right now, but I'll, it'll it'll click into gear soon. I hope. Um, hagiography um, is in fact uh, a genre that we can trace and we can kind of see the beginnings of it, and we can watch people do it, and we can we can understand it, and it makes sense. Mytho history as a genre doesn't actually make sense uh, at any level, and so. Uh, I'm not suggesting it's a genre that's created to save the Bible from itself, but it is a uh, kind of a non-standard genre that is recently being used to save the Bible from itself. Uh, and so I think both the genre is a, a little bit uh, not credible, and secondly, uh, the way it's being used is, uh, I think, uh, almost scandalous. Uh, so... Uh, Mytho history as a genre, it's existed for a while, but Christians have uh, insisted that these stories are not myths. Christians don't like terms like creation myth and things like that. Uh, and they they have for years, for decades, uh, maybe centuries, insisted that this is this is no part of myth or allegory or anything that's not real. And I think that in this modern age, that's an argument that they simply can't make. But they have to still try to give it some credibility and gravitas of history, even though they know at this point that it's it's a no-sell if they simply call these stories history. Uh, and so mytho-history just seems to be the compromise uh, that they are willing to use to say, uh, you know, these things that are inconsistent and sound funny, that's the mytho part, uh, but you know the actual big events that are being described is the history part. Uh, on the on the uh, way of differentiating the mytho from the history, that's also very ad hoc. Um, there is no way to take a look at something that a Christian is called. Uh, and by the way, this is a Bill Craig uh, thing who uses this uh, quite a bit. If you're wondering, um, you know maybe some of his resurgence and being used in this way um if you if you look at some of the ways that it's being used i i contend that there is no way uh to 
actually parse which part is mytho and which part is history. And I think that that uh, tends to be just kind of an ad hoc uh, reading depending on the point that you are trying to emphasize. And I think this is partly why this genre is um, a bad genre no matter how it's applied, but I think it's a very desperate genre uh, when applied to the Bible. Uh, so let's say, let's, let's just give, take, take a couple of the examples uh, that Dale gave so that I can kind of round out the point. So the serpent, for instance, talking, walking serpent. Well, why do we assume that the talking and walking part is mytho? Well, because it's crazy. <laughs> that's that's pretty much why you assume it. Because there's no evidence that this kind of creature... And the more Christians say that in the modern age, the, the stupider they sound. And that's So they have to kind of sacrifice that part, but still kind of hang on to the, ah, but you see, it is true that serpents crawl on their belly, bellies, and there's an enmity between man and woman. I would argue, actually, that's not true either. There is no uh, enmity between humans and serpents. Many humans keep uh, venomous or otherwise deadly serpents as pets. So the enmity is broken. Um, so it, it just becomes kind of ad hoc to say, well, you know, this element of it is true and this element of it is false. You have no way to distinguish that. Same thing with the cherubim. Well, why does why do you want to say mytho about a cherubim? Because it's crazy. That's why. Because when you look at other biblical passages, uh, it seems to contradict some of the things that the Bible says. So we must make that part mytho. Uh, but what's the real part? Well, uh, you know, maybe there was some barrier to a real Garden of Eden, uh, and you know, we just you know invented the cherubim to explain why the barrier is impenetrable and why people can't go into it. It's all very ad hoc. And so uh, I would just say, just given those two examples, the only reason you would call the the mytho history is because you realize that calling them history causes you to lose credibility. But you're still trying to, to maintain some credibility for the text so that people don't dismiss it at all. But when you think about it, smashing myth and history together is just oxymoronic. Myth, myths are things that didn't happen. History is are, are things that did happen. And if you're trying to figure out what happened at a given time, you wouldn't start with a genre uh, that starts with mytho. <laughs> so uh, there, there has to be a kind of a contrived reason to use this contrived uh, genre, uh, it, the way it's the way it's being used in the Bible today. Yeah. Yeah. So in the first place, I will agree with you that there are negative connotations with hearing anything to do with myth associated with the with the Bible, right? And even I mentioned Gordon Wenham; he believes this, for example. But he, I quoted him in in the blog because he's he's iffy. I don't want to call it mytho history. Let's call it proto history. It, it, it's the same thing. You're, you're just playing word games. That. If you're looking at secular ancient Near Eastern scholarship, the term is mytho-history. Uh, who cares about negative connotations? It's it, is it this? You know, we've given it this label. You can call it the ro rose petal genre. It doesn't matter what name it has. It's what what is that genre, and does it plausibly um, apply it? So it's yeah, like I, I'm not. 
you know, I've, I've never been one to get caught up in semantics. I, well, that shouldn't be mytho-history. Let's call it proto-history. So I just think that's a, a silly objection. If you're if you're a Christian and you're just objecting to it because of the name, then, yeah, that's that's not critical critical thinking. And, and how, how would you distinguish mythical uh, mytho-history from historical fiction? Because I think the closest, I wouldn't, like I said, I wouldn't call it hagiography. I think that's a different uh, literary form. But mytho-history is very much like the modern form of historical fiction to me. Uh, do you see the similarities? Uh, what what differences do you see? Um, yeah, I think it could be similar. Um, obviously, the with mytho-history, there are very specific forms or, or types of myths that it pertains to. So it, it couldn't be like a myth, um, you know, the it couldn't be, the stories couldn't be about Harry Potter flying around or something like that. It's got to be related to certain things, creation, establishment of man as the ruler of earth and the flood. So that's, that's a distinguishing feature. But um, as far as I know, it would be similar to modern historical fiction. Um, but again, I don't, I don't know anything about that, um, that modern genre enough. Well, to so here's, here's what I would say, uh, about those genres and how I would compare them. Uh, the emphasis is on the second word. Um, and so mytho history presents itself as history, as some form of history. Historical fiction presents itself as some form of fiction. So we don't, the, the, the first word is just a, a modifier of the second word, which is which is the thing that we're looking at. And I think that in a religious context, people want to make sure that the Bible is viewed as some kind of history, uh, and so mytho-history. Um, and in uh, other literary genres, we want to make sure that the reader understands that this is fiction, uh, things that things that did not happen. And the reason, um, so historical fiction, we're not making any claims that the story we're telling is true. What we're saying is we are using, uh, you know, real places, uh, people, and events to color this piece of fiction. And so we're gonna we're gonna talk about these events surely, but we're not gonna talk about what actually happened in these events with these people in these places. Uh, so that's gonna be kind of a springboard uh for a fictional story and i and i think that's an honest approach i can live with historical fiction because i don't think that that is oxymoronic you're just saying well what kind of fiction is it well it's a kind of fiction that deals with historical events uh but it's but it's still fiction i think mytho history is an attempt to elevate myth to something else uh, and it, it's it's a it's an attempt to kind of muddy the water and so you're saying well this is still some kind of history Granted, we're going to use uh, people that didn't exist, places uh, that uh, didn't exist, and things that didn't happen. But we're still going to be telling you a greater truth uh, that you need to know. And I, I think that's far more problematic than going the other way around. Yeah, so so in terms of the mytho-history, I would just say that that's not... you. Can, the skeptic would need to prove, first of all, that that motivation is the reason why it's being brought up and i think that the evidence speaks against it so so forget about the bible for a second right that this is a, a, a genre that's been discovered and identified by 
secular Assyriologists uh, and, and ancient Near Eastern scholars. So I, I think in your opening speech, did, you seem to be sort of questioning the genre itself. Um, I do. You do. Okay. So I, you, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's not legitimate, but I also think I don't know enough about the creation of the genre to completely uh, say that it's bogus. So even, you know, however genres are created, you know, uh, usually one person says something, they call they call it a thing, they, you know, coin a term, and then other people, if they agree with it, will will repeat that and validate it. I mean, it's not like there's a committee that says, okay, uh, let's, me, let's make a new genre uh, and then start applying it to, to these things. So it's um, the process of how genres come about uh, is is a little bit more complex than you know. We had a committee and we took a vote. Um, so that said, I would have to know a lot more about the uh, original uh, coiner of the term uh, to to know whether I think that it was scandalous or not to to use it. But I my bigger point is that this is not a term that has been used. For scripture, and in fact, it's a term that um, people like Bill Craig in the past would have said uh, is is not true. They would have pushed back on things like this. And I think the only reason you see some Christians using it now is because they recognize that their their traditional way of looking at it is in trouble. It's it's in trouble from major attack from the other side, and so they have to do something. Uh, as religion has always done, to to adapt uh, and and come closer in line with what we know in our modern age. And so now, some of these same people who would have uh, killed you if you had called the Bible myth, you know, 20 years ago, are now saying, "Okay, uh, we can we can do this thing. We can call it mytho history." So this is new, and I think it's very uh, a, a very cynical use uh, of a fairly questionable genre. Okay. Okay. So, so just to respond on the the first aspect about the genre in general, for forgetting about the Bible, um, just to kind of help you, that I guess one main identifier, because you brought up, what's the difference between mythohistory and myth in a technical scholarly sense? And one of the major differences, so myth has no concern for time or chronological sequence of cause and effect. Mythohistory does. This is this is. A main identifier it creation then then the fall then the flood then uh, you know blah 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 so it's there's this chronological sequence that it, it identifies this genre compared to myths which myths are more concerned about symbolic relevance and they're, they're more arranged uh, they're not necessarily arranged in cause and effect order within the ancient Near Eastern myths um, and possibly Possibly even Greek myths as well. I don't. I, um, but that's not as relevant to, to the Bible question. But so that's a major difference there. Is there, there's that concern, and they couch historical things. So when you identify these genealogy, I think answers in Genesis and young earth creationists are absolutely right that in pointing to these evidence and saying the author cares about history and the mainstream events and that sort of thing. But yeah, so that that would be. A distinguishing feature that secular scholars go to identify this genre but the main question is you're right okay 
great. Let, let me just grant that there is this genre and there are literatures, literature from the ancient Near East that can be identified in that genre as opposed to myth or something like that. Um, is the Bible mytho history? Uh, it seems like a literal history to, to me or something like that. And in the first place, it, it has these identifying features. So if we're looking at it just in the level of form, it, it does look, it has genealogies, it has king lists, it, you know, tables of nations in Genesis chapter 10. Um, it, it follows this chronological sequence of cause and effect uh, type sequence. So it does concern, have a historical concern, but yet we can also identify these mythical elements. And it, it's not, so in terms of the two identifying features that I find convincing, it, it isn't just the case that, well, they're crazy. You know, the serpent talking and walking, that's just crazy. So therefore, it's got to be myth. What can I use? Mytho-history. Great. Okay, there we go. Uh, I've got the best of both worlds, so to speak. Because th think about it. Um, in the first place, um, Blom's donkey talking. A donkey talking and walking, that's crazy. But I believe it's literal history. I have no problem believing that it's history, even though I don't believe that's the case with the snake. And... The, di the difference in that case is what the text itself says, right? The text itself tells us, oh, well, Balaam's donkey talking was a supernatural act. The Lord supernaturally opened up that donkey's mouth to talk. It was a miracle. Um, we don't get that in, in the Genesis text. Um, it, let, let me just ask you then. If, if you just read Genesis without preconceived ideas of, well, the snake's got to be Satan, would you come away thinking the story itself is saying this is just a beast of the field? He's a clever beast of the field. He got punished. He lost his legs, and that's why snakes slither around. Like, where where do you get Satan or or a demon or something like that? Or is there anything in the text that says it it was a supernatural act that the snake was talking? So when we had this conversation last year, I don't know if we had it on mic or off. Um, Sorry about the street cleaner out <laughs> just outside of uh, my window there. Um, you, it, I seem to recall you arguing that the snake was uh, Satan, and I was the one saying, no, there's nothing in this text to associate uh, the serpent with Satan. Um, and so I, I, was, I was wondering why you would change your tune on that uh, unless you just realize no, it's too problematic uh, if you say it's Satan, so it must be this other thing. Um, and so I think that you may have come to the right answer for the wrong reasons, <laughs> perhaps. Um, but no, I don't, I don't read that story as that's Satan in the garden. I understand that that's a Christian reading of the story. It's not, it's not a Jewish reading of the story. It's not a, a natural reading of the story. We're not introduced to a character named Satan that would, that, that character is never named uh, Satan or referred to, uh, to as the devil um, at all. However, that character, uh, we are led to believe, is a real character because that is the character that created the fall. Even in the New Testament, uh, Paul says that it was the woman who was deceived. Well, who deceived the woman? It was a talking serpent. It wasn't that the woman became weak and, and did this. No, the woman was deceived. And so you can't take the speech from the serpent and still have the woman deceived by the serpent. 
Uh, and yes, the Bible doesn't say uh, specifically that God made the serpent talk, but I don't think the Bible is required to say that about every fantastical event that happens. Notice in the punishments, even if you say the serpent couldn't talk, you can't deny that the serpent could walk upright because the punishment was, I'm going to immediately take away your ability to walk. And so you're going to have to slither. Uh, so I, it just seems a little ad hoc to say, okay, well, the walking was literal, but the talking was non-literal. And uh, so mytho history. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I, I have changed because I, I, I don't remember saying that it was Satan specifically, so I, I'm not sure which reference you're giving, but yes, that, that is traditionally what I've uh, believed, and I've changed on that, because I, just reading the text, the, the reason I would say that is because I think there are New Testament allusions to this, which imply Satan was the serpent, and it's based on this New Testament evidence that I actually believe it's historical fact uh, this is the history part of the mytho history that Adam and Eve fell. Eve was deceived by Satan. The, the serpent is a symbol within the myth of Genesis. The serpent is a symbol of the literal history of what Satan did. Um, so that's that's sort of how that would interplay. Okay, but, but that's, if that's, the, that's if that's the history, why not just write that history? Why why write a serpent when you know it's actually the, the devil? Be, so so that's what I'm saying. You can't you can't use that when we're trying to assess what is the genre of Genesis. The, the author of Genesis didn't knew nothing about the New Testament and, and that sort of thing. The New Testament authors or or that. Um, but let's there are two answers. So one I could we could say that the the author didn't know that oh Satan was uh, the one that deceived Adam and Eve. He just knew that they were deceived somehow through some character in a vague way. Or I could say he did know that it was, in fact, Satan that deceived Eve. But he's, again, he's couching it in this mytho-history genre. That's why he puts trees up, you know, tree of knowledge of good and evil. I think that's a symbolic element as well. I don't think that's literal history. Um, why? 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 So with that, it, it's harder to prove that, but it's just the nature of what the trees um, are called, the tr a tree of knowledge, of the knowledge of it's good. Implaus it's, it, it's implausible magic. It sounds crazy. I, I mean, yeah, I so know that you wouldn't put it that way, but, you know, it, just just trying to be as honest to how I would have thought about these things as a Christian, these are things that we are asked to take a leap of faith on. Because they do, they don't sound so you you either believe it or you don't believe it. But what you don't do is question the the genre of the Bible when it says these things happen. Because it there are too many verisimilitudes in the story for for those who um, aren't familiar with that word. A verisimilitude are little details that give a story uh, credibility as truth. And so, you know, um, a a boy went to the store to buy milk. You know, maybe that's a parable. Uh, a boy named Joey, uh, who was going to the store because his mother was disabled uh, with uh, cancer, uh, went to buy 2% lactate milk because they were both lactose intolerant. You see the difference between those stories. Uh, the second one has lots of verisimilitudes. 
And so if that story is still fiction, then it's a lie. <laughs> because it's 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 those details are put in there to make you believe that this is a real story as opposed to a parable. Um, and so what I'm saying is the story that you're trying to say, well, some of this is myth and some of this is history. There are too many verisimilitudes in the story to just ad hoc saying, oh, well, you know, we'll say mytho on these places that are hard to swallow. Yeah, so, so that's just not true then. So all of the original audience would have known, known this. Now, we lost the mytho-historical genre died out uh, before even Jesus came around, right? So it may be conf- you might have an argument. It's a separate argument to say, well, that's confusing for us. How are we today or people in Jesus' day supposed to understand this story? But the original audience and heroes would have uh, hear- hearers would have been able to identify the mytho history genre. There wouldn't have been that confusion. But that how do we know that? Separate, that's a separate. Well, how do you know? How do you know that? Because the skeptics making the claim here, you have to prove that they would have interpreted the same way that we do, and they wouldn't have been able to identify mytho history. And you, you can't do that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I wanted to admit, yeah, with the tree. Remember, this isn't one of my two things, and the reason is I can I can see the young Earth creationist perspective. Like, yeah, I I believe that the tree of knowledge of good and evil is probably one of the mythic or symbolic elements um but uh, i'm not forcefully putting that forward here here's my proof it's it's only this snake and this cherubim things that i'm putting forward these push me over the edge and i say yeah i can prove that genesis is probably mytho history and it, it applies to both the talking and the walking um but yeah i, I would just want to say it, it's it's not it's not because it's crazy. It's it's based on what. There's nothing crazy about a snake talking anymore. I I defended and still would defend a talking donkey. I mean, the, there's no difference there. I think that was literal history according to the Bible. But in this case, it's what the Bible tells us. It's the positive evidence saying this was a serpent. It wasn't. It wasn't Satan or anything. You agree with me on that? Secondly, the ancient Hebrews weren't idiots. They they 100 we have 100 knowledge that they knew snakes in nature didn't talk um you know of their own accord at the very least so the the only way you can take this literally is to say well god somehow supernaturally opened up the mouth of the snake entirely ad hoc you've it's of course it's plausible because they did that for the donkey but that's just you making stuff up and imposing that on the text of genesis and Given what we know of the mytho history genre and its existence, I think that's the more plausible explanation for the story of the snake talking and walking in the garden. Wait a minute. These people were people who thought that uh, God could open up the mouth of any animal and make them talk. So that wouldn't be far-fetched to them at all. And even if they didn't include that detail in the narrative, we know from other narratives that they thought that was absolutely possible. They, didn't, they like you, don't see anything Im- implausible about uh, a serpent talking. Uh, it doesn't just say that the serpent could talk. It says it was the cleverest of all of the creatures in the garden. So it was also uh, intelligent uh, in a way that uh, rivaled human intelligence. 
So they they did apparently believe that this was possible and not implausible. And so, you know, your your statement that these people weren't stupid and they knew snakes couldn't talk. I, I, I wouldn't say that they were stupid, but they didn't know that snakes couldn't talk. No. Well, they did. They did. They knew that naturally speaking, that snakes weren't intelligent on the level of humans and weren't animals that could talk they they knew this from their experience you'd have right they also knew that snakes didn't walk because they didn't see any walking snakes either but they but they thought that this was a special creature or that this was just the order of creation and that these things could happen and after the fall and so forth they couldn't happen Uh, it's there's no way though to say oh but they didn't think that this would have been plausible because when i read their other stories they apparently do think this sort of thing is plausible but the no but it's only plausible through a supernatural act or something when it goes against but creation is a supernatural act or a demon well this is after creation right creation's done the creation week is done and then the snake shows up genesis 3 for the fall Right, and they believe that the snake had features, special features, that current snakes of their time didn't have. That's true, because the snake was walking and and that sort of thing. But they, okay, so they don't believe that the snake was supernaturally caused to walk, to talk, uh, and to have intelligence. The reason we could say this, to count that out, how about this This reason? That would make God the author of sin. God is the one making the serpent say what it's what it's saying That's the natural one. act, right? Yes, so that, yes. And the that's, that's the one that I wanted you to get to, because that's where your um, argument comes completely full circle, if I uh, dare say. It it doesn't make sense to you because if it were viewed the way I'm viewing it, then it would uh, prove a contradiction in the Bible. And your starting point is there must not be contradictions in the Bible, so it could not be that. And and I contend that, no, it could just be contradictory it, because it's, it's not the same author, for instance, who wrote this story about the serpent and the one who wrote things about uh, Levitical law. Uh, you know, some thousand years later or whatever. So it's there, there's no reason to believe that there weren't contradictory ideas. And this is uh, the same goes for the cherubim. Uh, so in the uh, you didn't go into much detail on the show, but I encourage people to read the uh, blog posts. Uh, and we, we both were a little lengthy in the blog posts, but uh, it, it's a good read. Um, Same thing about the cherubim. You make a theological case for why the cherubim couldn't be real. But theology changes, and people's views of God and the rules of God have changed over generations. And so the the earlier people who wrote the book of Genesis and that story with the cherubim uh, in the garden weren't the same people who would have— you know, written the some of the other things about uh, the cherubim and maybe rules about uh, graven images of uh, you know heavenly beasts or whatever. So it, you're just you're ad hoc ruling out that it could be just an honest human contradiction. Uh, and so by ruling that out, you're saying, well, it must be this other category. 
Yeah, it's not. No, I'm, I'm with mainstream scholarship. We know for a historically proven fact that this text was written at a time when they would have known the um, second commandment and that sort of thing. Um, I think but you're assuming their society was monolithic. Even if it was written in the same time, it doesn't mean that it was written by the same people and they wouldn't have necessarily had that understanding. There's, there's different understandings between the priest, the, the priest cults and the prophet cults. And they, they had different ideas about uh, how to interact with God. Uh, and you see this from the first and second book of Genesis uh, and throughout uh, Genesis and the Yahwists and the uh, El- El- Elists. Um, you know, there were, there were different cultures around God. And so just to say, no, these guys were always on the same page and never said any contradictory things is a presupposition that you are using to uh, form your conclusion that these can't be contradictions. And I, and I challenge the presupposition that you're making. Yeah, I would just say, well, that, we know better, right? We know what the we know that there were different factions at different times israel fell into sin even the establishment and that sort of thing but the even the identification of these idols as the sin proves um that they made this differentiation they didn't treat the cherubim in the same way hey i put up a new statue of ball this this is my act of rebellion against the yahweh cult cultists or something like that if, if you're envisioning all these different groups or something like that they saw the, the placement of an idol as the definitive act. I, we're taking a stand. We're no longer part of this Yahweh thing. This differentiates us. And the cherubim wasn't seen that way. That was part of Orthodox that all the sects were happy with, including the Bible authors who wrote this uh, command, the second commandment against idolatry and that. They, they had no right, problem. Right, but it was, it was actually God directly... Um, if I recall the, I didn't look this up before the show, but if I recall correctly, it was God directly who ordered uh, the people building the um, uh, the ark or the tabernacle, wherever it was, to put these cherubim on there. Uh, it wasn't their idea, um, and so this was this was part of God's instruction to do. And it seems like a very odd instruction to do uh to say i want you to put these cherubim on there but what he's really saying is oh but there's no there's no such thing as cherubim well so so cherubim are symbolic right this is the mytho part that myths are generally symbolic they're symbolic of god's sovereignty of god's presence they they represent the symbol um and now that you're you're giving me god in the mix as an explanation yeah like so Obviously, if the Christian God is true and, and the Bible is true, then I don't have this historical challenge to worry about, about conflicting people. We have the biblical authors, and God is has to be consistent. He says no idols of anything in heaven or earth, and that would be consistent with his command of giving cher- making cherubims. And the only explanation for that is if, well, they're not literal creatures. In, in no, heaven. the other explanation is that wouldn't have been considered an idol. When, when when God said to put this thing on the ark, it's not an idol at that point. And he's not saying you need to worship this thing or what have you. Uh, so I, I think that, um, again, you're, you're letting a theological conclusion be your starting point. 
for figuring out whether this is literal or not. And I, I think, think that we have to not jump to the theological conclusion first. In fact, I don't think that the theological conclusion has any place in the, the literary structure at all. Uh, it's it's either real uh, or it's not real, regardless of what you think the theology was at that time. And if you think that God actually told people to post cherubim um, on on things, and they obviously, you know, if they if they doesn't matter whether they thought cherubim were real or not, or whether cherubim were real, it's it's real enough at that point. Uh, and when the storyteller of Genesis says, you know, this cherubim has this flaming sword and he's keeping people out of the story, that even that has some verisimilitude. Uh, I think it was he was guarding the east uh, entrance or something like that. Um, and, you know, you can say, well, all this breaks down into some kind of symbology somewhere along the line. But the story just doesn't read that way. It's hard for you to say, well, Eden is real and the fall is real. But the cherubim that was sent to guard it, uh, in fact, I don't think it was a cherubim. I think it actually said angel. Angel, uh, that's somehow not real. Uh, so I I just, it seems very uh, ad hoc. And I don't, I don't see how you get to some things not being a part of the history part just because they would conflict with theology. I think there are lots of things in the Bible that contradict the theology of other parts of the Bible. That's yeah. why we call them contradictions. So, so that's interesting, though, because I, I, it's the opposite. You're the one that's being ad hoc. You're, you're adding in this non-evidenced assumption that somehow cherubim are the exception to the rule, that you can make images of them and God is consistent with his, his second commandment or something like that to give such an order. And I, I just think on a balance of probabilities. So in the first place, yes, that's possible. Remember, I'm only 50, 55% certain that the mytho-history genre applies to Genesis chapters 1 to 11. There's a lot of room for doubt in there. However, if, if we're just looking on a balance of probabilities, it's your explanation that, yeah, I know, I know that there's this command, and we know historically the Jews were very against idols. This is what defined them, uh, even in the earliest periods, going back as a thousand to a thousand BC. We can prove historically that they had this uh, distinction uh, and that sort of thing, and it, it defined them as a group versus when they were rebelling and stuff like that. But all of a sudden, but but God gave an exception with cherubim, and who are we to question? You're, you're adding in this ad hoc component that there's some reason they're different from everything else. Well, uh, yeah, the, it's, it's not so ad hoc as much as uh, you would have to say that it's not an idol, and they were not, they were not told to worship the thing. Uh, it's so in the the, Dave. it's in the context of worship, having anything in the context of but worship. They weren't, to, they were, they didn't worship the ark. Uh, they worshiped God. Uh, they didn't worship the clothes of the priests, although those were, uh, demanded by God too. They didn't worship the temple. They, they worship at the temple. Uh, and so I think that you might be using some of your uh, preconceptions to say, well, you know, any image of a cherubim or an angel or whatever is by necessity an idol in the way that we might say that figurines are used as idols uh, with Catholics. You know, I, I actually think that what Catholics do with their symbols and things would run amok of laws against idolatry. 
so I, I do think that's a different thing. Uh, but the the whole cherubim thing, I don't think that that would run amok uh, of idolatry. But whether I did or not, that's not why I base. That's not why I say the cherubim must must be real. And that is why you are saying that they must not be real. You right. are you are taking your preconceived theology and saying, well, they couldn't break that, so therefore it couldn't be real. Yes, it is. It is a theological overriding consideration that that's what's pushing me over the edge on, on this example to say, yeah, they, they are probably not real. They must be. They're probably myths, mythical creatures. And it's it's in the light of the context. Uh, we know what cherubim are and outside of the religion of Judaism. Uh, and they're purely mythical creatures in those religions. Um, we we well, know so that, are gods. Uh, that's true. Yes, so are gods, but not God. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, so it's, you have to come down to to making that assessment, and and it ultimately re revolves around okay, well, there's this special exception in the case of cherubim, and therefore God commanded it, and it wasn't an issue. And I I feel that that's ad hoc on a balance of probabilities. Um, let, let me just flip it flip it on you, because remember, it is the skeptic that bears the burden of proof. Can, can you prove that what you're saying is in fact the case on a balance of probabilities? Um, in, in the same way, I, I would actually be comfortable making a claim and saying it probably is uh, mythical based on this theological argument. Could you flip it? Could, do you think that you can make an argument and say, no, they, they probably aren't mythical. They probably are literal creatures in some way. Well, let me, let me answer it um, this way. Uh, I think if we presented this argument that we have both made to a board of literary experts uh, discussing genre, uh, they would side with me that you were doing it wrong by using theology uh, as your guiding principle. If we went before a board of theologians, uh, they would say, I'm doing it wrong because I'm ignoring the theology. And I'm speaking of the Bible as literature, and I think that my case is better for cherubims, for the people th believing that cherubims was real based on the literature alone. Okay. I'll, I'll just, I asked you a question, so I, do, would you like me to respond to that with a, a quick note for the audience just so uh sure you you can and uh after that i'd like to get on to uh design and uh some some interesting science that uh that you want to discuss here so cool okay so so yeah so just for a final word um what david said believe it or not is actually the, op the opposite it, it's modern historians that um ancient near eastern historians that they go way beyond what I do. They, they use this theological reasoning and, and even things that they press, you know, they just make this theological claim rain. There is no rain. This is one of the reasons they identify Genesis as mytho history. And I, I don't use this reason. I think that there is an effective defeater for this. But trust me, they go way beyond what I'm doing in, in their reasoning. So you're actually, David's position is at odds with historians, secular historians, non-Christians, non-Jewish, don't care about whether the Bible's true or not. The majority opinion is is my opinion, uh, the overwhelming majority opinion, actually. Um, and their reasoning goes way beyond um, just my two 
restrained reasons that I think push me over the edge. So, yeah, cool. Um, so, well, you did you did mention rain in your write up. Uh, that that might deserve two minutes. Um, sure, I, and I agree with you. I don't think that reason is convincing, but scholars yeah. do. For for those who didn't uh, slog through both of our write ups, uh, let me just say the the one on rain I I got a chuckle out of um, the the idea that well these people understood rain they understood the water table and water cycles uh, and they had this this invented thing called the firmament keeping waters above and waters below so surely it must have rained and so when it when the bible says in the days of noah that it had not rained before that must be mythical because they would have known better and that that entire argument is based on what you think they would have known uh and i don't think i don't i don't know that there is any reason to believe that uh, we would have uh, that they would have known that uh, you know maybe they would have known maybe they wouldn't have known um, it's the the type of reasoning used though to get there and show well and therefore a worldwide flood is uh, myth there are, there are lots of reasons to think that the worldwide flood is wrong but I don't know that there are lots of reasons that we should believe that the writers thought it was a myth. Gotcha. I, I agree with David's conclusion. I, I don't agree with his reasoning as, as to that conclusion. So, we, yeah, um, just quickly, uh, they, we do know historically that ancient Jews and ancient Near East in general at, at that time, um, including the Greeks, knew about the water cycle in a basic way. Um, so, so that part is actually probably true. But it's, it's just, I think that that doesn't can, that doesn't rule out um, a literal young Earth creationist understanding. Like you, you, you know, you can you can understand that. You can understand it literally. Like I, I can't prove that. Oh, thinking it didn't rain until the, after the flood or something like that is uh, ridiculous. Um, although I will say, Answers in Genesis has changed their mind about that, and they they're no longer confident about saying that that part has to be literal. Um, I don't understand why, but um, yeah, because I, it's crazy. Which <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is what I said forty-five minutes ago. <laughs> so. All right, cool. All right, so so let's get into the second aspect that David's dying to get into. So, okay, great. So so those um, that's the first aspect that has to be established. Does the Bible actually teach that the Earth is young and or specially designed as opposed to? formed you know 4.5 billion years ago through naturalism and naturalistic processes purely without god's involvement and you know for dating 4.5 billion years but what are the facts in this matter and um here's where i want to sort of challenge and i, I want to kind of find out how skeptics reasoning so so the majority vast majority of scientists on the planet um and uh the vast majority of I think the majority of Christians believe, yeah, the secular model, the solar nebular hypothesis explains the formation of the planets in our solar system, the star, the sun, uh, as well as our planet Earth. It, it was a swirling ball of gas and, you know, through natural processes, uh, the sun gas in the center condensed to form the, the suns and planetes, you know, grains of dust and 
came together and formed small boulders and those boulders came together to form uh, meteors and over time, over billions of years, they formed planetesimals and those planetesimals eventually became plan the planets that we have um, all through this naturalistic process. And it took 4.5 billion, billion years to form naturally. God didn't need to be involved or anything like that. Um, and previously, I, I so I, I still think that this is most probable given um, the evidence that we have. Um, however, I, I do think there are significant doubts that can come into play and that young Earth creationist scientists do deserve to be taken seriously in questioning this naturalistic assumption and saying, well, maybe God was involved in this instance, or maybe there's actually evidence that the solar system isn't 4.5 billion years old. It's younger than that. And um, I just wanted to question this second element. In order for the skeptical biblical error argument to work, you have to prove that, well, what are the facts that are inconsistent with what the Bible says, allegedly says? Um, so this is an important thing to do, to address, and I think there are some doubts, because when it comes to the solar system, so in the first place, there are different levels that we can ask, right? There's the universe as a whole. Um, I believe it's actually proven beyond reasonable doubt that the universe, as well as the galaxies, are billions of years old. Um, I'm just convinced, based on the evidence that I've seen, and I don't find young Earth creationist counters to this to be convincing. Um, you know, based on time dilation and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, I lost my place. So, yeah. So, however, there are lower levels of designs. You can ask, well, is uh, is there design at the level of our galaxy cluster? Because there are galaxy clusters out there, right? Um, and we're a part of a galaxy cluster. Is our galaxy uniquely situated within that galaxy cluster? And, it, you know, Hugh Ross, I, I list a, I'll list a source by Hugh Ross that goes into all these different levels and says, we're remarkably fine-tuned. Our galaxy is situated within the galaxy cluster in a remarkably fine-tuned area for not just life, but intelligent life capable of producing advanced technology such as that we have today. That's, that's his specificity. That's what he's specifying. Um, also, our galaxy, uh, sorry, our solar system within the galaxy is uniquely positioned um, so that we're able to develop the technology we have, also to even see and discover the universe. If we were any closer to the center, um, you know, in the first place, we would be exposed to gamma radiation. All life wouldn't exist on Earth. Um, so let alone allowing us to see out and discover the universe or discover the galaxies and stuff, we, we just wouldn't be able to see beyond a certain point. Um, telescopes would be useless. If we were further out, we would eventually drift out into the spiral arms of the galaxy, again being exposed to cosmic ray radiation, all life killed, no advanced technology, blah, blah, blah. So these are different levels, um, but I want to focus in on the solar system as well as the planet the planet Earth on a uh, astronomy level, and this is where I think some questions have been coming up. So I, I believe that when we're looking at the planet Earth and geology and and history or all of these evidences, on a balance of probabilities, it does show that the Earth is probably 4.5 billion years old. Um, however, at the level of the solar system, when we look at the Earth from a planetary from a planetary science perspective. 
there are some interesting questions. It's, it's not the case that scientists have everything figured out. And it seems like their theories are constantly disproven. Um, and they have to come up with new ad hoc solutions on the spot constantly. And this is what I want to focus on here is the methodology. At what point does a naturalistic hypothesis for the solar system and the origin of the Earth uh, become ad hoc and, and we should favor some kind of creationism? And this is really the heart of what I'm trying to get at, not necessarily proving that they they were designed or, or are old or are uh, young, sorry. but. Yeah, so, so let me give some, some examples here. So, so in the first place, we have uh, Mercury, the, the closest planet to the sun. So post-2008, um, you know, we, we knew that the planet's core was massively, at least 40% made of iron is what secular astronomists, um, astronomers um, thought. And, and this is weird. This, this is physically impossible given that theories of... Uh, natural theories of how the planet formed. Um, this is just not possible to be the case at that dis at that uh, distance from the sun. Um, so, okay, well, what happened? Um, how do astronomers explain this? And they'll come up with a plausible explanation. Well, an asteroid came and maybe it hit Mercury and all of the, the lighter elements dispersed from its core floating off in outer space, leaving behind just the denser, heavier elements in, in its core. And okay, great. For, for 30 years, everyone's, oh, we, we figured out, we figured this out. It, it all makes sense. But then new science, in 2008, the Messenger space probe went and observed Mercury and actually took detailed me measurements of it. And guess what? This, hypoth this hypothesis or explanation has been scientifically falsified because it has uh, large uh, levels of sulfur and potassium in it. And these are volatile elements. If the impact explanation were true, then they wouldn't, there wouldn't be these lighter elements on the planet Mercury. This is a scientifically proven fact and it presents a mystery and it shows, you know, there's this element of, okay, well, this explanation has been falsified. Okay, so the the question methodologically will be, well, what do we do with that? Does that falsify that uh, Mercury was formed 4.5 billion years ago? Uh, or does it just falsify an auxiliary theory? You know, so in science, main theories, whether it's evolution or whatever, are protected or buttressed with auxiliary theories. So you might find a, a scientific evidence that falsifies, seemingly falsifies the theory itself. Um, but what it doesn't matter what side you're on, whether you're a young earth creationist or whether you're a, a naturalist, an atheist, um, a lot, most of the times when these contradictory evidences come up, we'll just dismiss it and say, well, that's an anomaly and it disproves an, an auxiliary theory, but we'll protect the main theory by postulating some new ad hoc auxiliary theory. Um, and it, yeah, so, so that's going to be my question in learning from David. When I'm saying these facts i'm i'm wanting us to think methodologically are we are does this disprove an auxiliary theory or the main theory how do we tell the difference at, at what point does the the main theory itself have to be abandoned in favor of well what's the opposite of naturalism creationism or some sort of supernatural origin or something like that so you know this is kind of the questions that i'm trying to bring up here there, there are other things as well but quickly um okay so with the Earth. 
Um, a major question, there, there are multiple questions on the Earth. You know, you've heard about the magnetic field and young Earth creationists have uh, had arguments about that. Um, I actually think there are good responses to that um, from the natural side. But one of the major mysteries, how do we get all this water? Water is a 70% of the Earth's surface. It's essential for life. How in the world um, did the water get here? Because according to this solar nebula hypothesis or nebular hypothesis, um, that shouldn't be the case. Earth should have been bone dry. These lighter elements could not have formed naturally um, through those processes originally. And so the majority of scientists say, ah, well, we've got the answer. It, the water was imported. First, they said by comets, because comets are, have got water and ice on them. Uh, in ice form on them, right? So that that's, you know, Earth was bombarded after it was formed. It was bombarded by millions of comets and voila, we've got our water. But then this runs into problems because we've got space probes that have actually studied comets and studied the composition of them. And guess what? Actually, comets couldn't account for the water on Earth because our water is different. Um, comet water has more deuterium in it, for example. And so scientists have known, okay, well, the comet explanation doesn't seem to work. Um, that's been falsified. Let's come up with another thing. Asteroids, they have water on them. They delivered the thing. Um, and again, once the composition, new scientific evidence says, well, actually, they have the wrong chemical composition as well. And it's been scientifically proven that no more than fifth. Uh, either 15 or at maximum 50% of Earth's water could have been added um, through the through asteroids importing it to the Earth or something like that. Um, okay, so that would seem to falsify the theory, right? But what naturalists do is, the newest explanation I've been able to find is, is interesting, and they'll say, well, it's, it's not so much about importing water in liquid form or something it's it's about getting the elements hydrogen and oxygen and they'll say on the primordial earth um these elements were brought here and then the rocks melted or something and then the hydrogen and oxygen combined so it's literally water explodes from the rocks type thing that this theory is frowned upon by most scientists um but it's it's the newest thing that's trying to uh explain this because asteroids look their, their ratios of xenon to krypton uh are totally off base their osseum isotopes don't match the water on earth so the old asteroid and comet thing which is what majority of scientists believe today is there are problems with it um and there there are also problems with this new theory as well because it's it's been there are observations that contradict it so okay the methodological question what is one to do we, we've got this mystery there are some solutions and there the more they seem to work on the face of it but then when we study it based on science probes and the latest science there are these problems that come up should we throw away the theory or is this just a falsification of the auxiliary theories um that that's going to be my question for david um a couple other examples. So um, Jupiter and then Uranus. So Jupiter, first of all, it has certain gases. Um, it has xenon, it has krypton on it. 
um, and I think argon as well. And once again, according to the naturalist theory, the, the main theory predicted the solar nebular hypothesis, it is physically impossible for these gases to be on the planet Jupiter in the concentrations that they are. They have three times as much the amount. And this, this go to NASA's website, nobody denies this, this is uncontroversial. Okay, um, well, how should we explain that? And there is a couple of attempts to explain this. So, number one, they, f they first said, well, maybe uh, asteroids and meteors hit it, and they brought these elements. They, so, the, these elements can only form in what's called the trans-Neptunian object region of space, so beyond Neptune's orbit, uh, you know, where Pluto is and, and all of that. That's the only place, scientifically speaking, these elements could form. Okay, well, maybe objects brought these elements to it. Uh, well, that doesn't work because, once again, these elements, once they get closer into the sun, they'll heat up and these elements will be gone. They, they, it will not make it to Jupiter to be delivered there. So now the, the other theory, okay, well, maybe Jupiter formed in the trans-Neptunian thing and then uh, eventually wandered its way into where we are now. And there are certain problems with, with that theory as well. Um, in terms of dating, I haven't said anything about that. Jupiter's moons, we, we've recently sent probes to study the moons and we've learned a lot in the 21st century about these moons. So for example, uh, Jupiter's moon Callisto is the most cratered object in our solar system. And uh, naturalists will say it's 4 billion years old and it, there's very little geologic activity. Um, so all these craters throughout its history stay on its surface. Um, the problem is, so how do they say it's 4 billion years old? They use the what's called the crater dating method. Um, so, you know, they assume uniform, uniformitarianism, while craters form, are observed to form at these rates today, we'll assume they've been doing it the same over all of its history. Um, so therefore, we can date uh, Callisto as 4 billion years old. But this crater dating method has been totally, I would say totally falsified, but let, let's see if David thinks so. Because, so number one in the first place, um, there are no craters within, or smaller craters. All the craters on Callisto's surface are 0.1 to 100 kilometers in length. Um, but there are no smaller craters. If it was 4 billion years old and there's no little to no geological activity on Callisto, where are all these small impact craters. They're, they're just not there. And this is a problem for the naturalist theory. Um, furthermore, it's been scientifically discovered um, through studying uh, another one of Jupiter's moons that actually the, the assumption of uniformitarianism is false when it comes to craters. Because what happens is when a crater, when a thing strikes one of these moons or planets or something, a bunch of debris is sent up and they crash back down to the surface, creating a whole bunch of other craters. Um, and this this has shot. This was a finding that kind of surprised naturalists, given their theory. Um, they didn't expect so many craters to be formed from the debris of, of a crashing object, and it calls into question this whole crater dating thing. So again, focusing on the methodology, because I know David doesn't isn't a scientist, neither am I. I'm, I'm getting this from NASA's website and, and stuff like that. So, um, but the methodological question is what's important. What do we, these are the facts to date. 
what do we do with this? Do we throw out the crater dating method? Do we try to come up with some auxiliary theory to try and save it? Um, what, what should we do methodologically? That, that's what I'm focused on. Um, another thing is Saturn's moon, Titan. Um, it has what's called a methane problem. Um, so there's, there's a certain amount of methane, 5% of its atmosphere, which is huge, uh, is methane. The rest is nitrogen. Um, methane has a short lifespan. It, it only, uh, it will, the sun will break it down into ethane and, and some other elements. Um, and as such, you know, it, it can only last so long. Cal scientists calculate 10 or at most 100 million years. It, it cannot be billions of years old as a, as naturalists believe. Um, this pr provides a maximum age limit. And okay, eight, eight skeptics are aware of this, the, the scientists know about this, um, and they realize it's a problem, it's a, it's a mystery, and they've come up with various solutions that have been, in one way or another, falsified. The, the latest exp explanation to, to help David out, because it's again, it's about methodology. I'm not trying to get David to refute these facts or something, but the latest theory is, okay, well, we know that ice, it has ice volcanoes, and maybe there's these, methane is being produced deep under its surface and is coming into the atmosphere through, being replenished in the atmosphere um, through ice volcanoes. And it's been observed on Earth that um, in, in some Scandinavian country, this is happening. There, there's production of uh, methane within an ice volcano. Uh, deep under the earth. So great. There's there's the answer. Um, but there's a there's a problem there. So number one, it's ad hoc. There's no proof that this is in fact the source of all of the methane and thing. It's it's just okay. We need to come up with a just so story to solve this problem. And secondly, there are serious scientific questions as to the self-limiting uh, nature of this methane-producing mechanism. And and that's where we're at at the moment. Uh, is it true that it, it can form it, or are the there's self-limiting mechanisms? And, and that's what young Earth creationists will say. No, there can't be. Scientists will say, well, no, there's differences on Titan compared to Earth, so it, it could produce it. Um, what do you do with that? Um, finally, Uranus. Um, this will be the last one. Sorry, David, I'm talking way way too long. Is is this interesting, or am I boring? Oh, I I have no idea. <laughs> so, uh, don't don't worry about me. I'm an idiot. Um, I'm pretty sure that there are many people who are fascinated by this. So, uh, give give them give them the full frontal dale. Okay. We can, okay. can so, handle it. Okay, great. So, okay, so Uranus, it's it's a weirdo. It's it's rotating on its side on the side. Its poles are on the sides. It's unlike any of the other planets and. Naturally speaking, the solar nebular nebula or nebular hypothesis, this is physically impossible to be the case. It, it should not. It should be like every other planet because they all formed in the same elliptical disk, uh, as it's called, and in, in, in the same plane. That's why the, the the orbits are all flat, virtually, right? They're all in the same orbital plane. They're not. One isn't like way above and way below and stuff like that. They're all in this orbital disk. Um, uh, so, yeah, so, so Uranus should not be on its side, for example, uh, rotating on its side, but it is. 
Um, how did that happen? All right, well, naturalists are like, okay, we can solve this problem. An asteroid hit it, uh, a very big one, almost the size of the Earth, and knocked it over. Um, but then through our through more recent scientific probes, actually that's scientifically falsified. That's impossible to be true. Because, um, number one, we know that Uranus has a nearly perfect orbit. Only the Earth um, has a, has something better. Um, so it's about 0.46 in terms of its orbital plane. Zero would be perfect. Um, and, uh, okay, and also its moons, the way the orbits of its moons do not align with this impact thing. If, if it was just truly just an impact, it would be random. It would be not as uh, design looked or, you know, looking so much designed to be where it is. Um, it would be much more random. It wouldn't be uh, so, quote unquote, perfect. Uh, one, one scientist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, who's a, a hardcore atheist, I, I even had a quote from him saying in, in one of, this is back in the 2007 era and he was saying that um if there there wasn't uh if first of all if we didn't observe the features that uranus has no scientist in the world would predict it based on the solar nebular theory it, it would take uh some this modern space technology to be able to design that planet to be like it is um now obviously i'm quote mining he doesn't believe uranus was was designed but it, it's just i'm proving look there is this mystery and it's it's a problem right that that needs to be explained and it doesn't fit naturally within modern astro astronomical secular theories so it, re it requires it's another thing that requires these explanations um so okay so basically it's been scientifically falsified so what's the most up-to-date theory so now scientists will say okay great so so an impact thesis cannot explain the the features of Uranus how about this there are rings perhaps in the past there were more notable rings and this somehow caused Uranus to tip over only to a certain degree I think about 70 degrees um, but that's not sufficient to explain its current uh, location so after that then an asteroid came hit it and knocked it the rest of the way totally ad hoc no proof for this it's just it's a just so story to save the theory because otherwise it would be false um and that's where where we're at today but it, again even with this impact i would say well there's still this orbital perfection uh in terms of its orbital plane and this is still strained um given that you're even if it's just a partial explanation the impact is partly um to account for this that seem it seems ad hoc it seems strained so what do we do do what does a, an atheist do with this? Do we abandon theory or are we open to creation at that point? Um, and, you know, it's interesting that Jupiter and Uranus were both said. So one last fact that I find funny. So it's the interplay, the design of the interplay between planets. So Jupiter, remember, in order to account for the facts, Jupiter had to Jupiter and Saturn had to be um, formed beyond Neptune's orbit, out in the TNO region of space. But Uranus and Neptune pr present problems, so in order for them to be formed, they had to be formed where Jupiter and Saturn are in relation to the Sun now. Um, and then both just happen to magically migrate to their current positions over time. Um, so in the first place, that's totally ad hoc. There's no proof 
that this is even that this happens or, or can happen or did happen. But also it's there's this designed interplay because Uranus's orbit is linked to Jupiter's stability. And as we know, Jupiter's stability uh, in terms of its orbit and, and taking on asteroids and meteors saves the Earth. Uh, life would be impossible without Jupiter there to protect us um, from these things. So there's even this interplay. So maybe you come up with an ad hoc thing to explain why Jupiter has this or that. You have come up with an ad hoc explanation as to why Uranus has this or that feature. Um, let's pretend they're equal. Okay, but then what about the interplay? Because our solar system isn't just Jupiter in isolation, Uranus in isolation. It's Jupiter and Uranus. And you've got to have these mechanisms uh, interconnecting in a way that's that's plausible. And um, from from what I've seen on the latest research, where astronom secular astronomers are nowhere near cl close to that. There, there are major issues uh, on the in terms of incorporating the explanations for the problematic elements or features of the solar system and making them consistent with the other ad hoc components. So yeah, the, turning it to, to David, um, that's my question. Okay, these are the facts to the best of my knowledge at, at the moment. Um, and I've, I haven't done a sat fully satisfactory investigation on these facts, but I have looked at both sides. I've, I've went on NASA, I've, I've looked at scientific papers trying to account for some of these these features and I've, I've tried my best to here's the problem here's what creation would say here's what the latest naturalist accounts are for these now what do you do is it too much is it too strained do we hold tight to the naturalist or can we finally falsify the theory uh over to you david okay um <laughs> how long was that <laughs> It doesn't matter. It's all right. I, I'll uh, I'll wake up here in a minute. Um, so here's here's um, where I would begin. I think um, uh, you know, having having read this in advance and um, having had some time to think about my response, uh, I would say that your first duty, uh, if you think that these these ideas are even remotely interesting. Uh, is to go to a science blog. Uh, Physics World might be a good um, place to start, and um, and suggest them there. See if you can find some people who are uh, science students, majors, uh, even acting scientists to engage uh, with these ideas. Uh, I think that uh, watching that interchange would be good. But uh, the one thing I don't see uh, with young earth creationist science types are debates and or uh, live interactions with scientists. Uh, that's hard to find. Uh, and so I, you know, always open to new ideas on things that I don't fully understand. Uh, I think the first place to go to would be there. And then secondly, uh, maybe this would be your first stop just to find Christians like you, Ross, who who clearly disagree with you, uh, who are experts in their field. Uh, and I think that it's fair to say that you are a an enthusiastic amateur on this, uh, which is actually a higher position than most of us, <laughs> I think. But 
your your next step would be to advance it to someone higher than you on that ladder. Um, you know, maybe like a Huros or uh, or the billions uh, or at least billion of Christians uh, who believe that the solar system is old. Uh, and so, you know, before maybe trying to overturn uh, a few centuries of science and um, uh, and all of its major disciplines, you might see if you can convince some of the people who already agree with you on the major thing, that there's a God who had something to do with creation, uh, and find out, you know, maybe why they, because they're not idiots either, so they know about the things that you're talking about, maybe find out why they don't find it convincing, or maybe you can convince them and shape the course of it. So I would say, you know, maybe primarily or secondary, that's that's where you should go. Um, I, I look forward to seeing those exchanges, but uh, right now I am not even qualified to know if the questions you bring up are good questions. Uh, so I can only grant you the, the conversational charity of assuming that they're good questions. Now, for all I know, if you present these to actual working scientists in the field, they would they would laugh your questions out of the room. They would they would say they're ridiculous right. questions. What are you talking about? So I don't I don't know that I don't I, I'm just going to charitably say though that they are good questions. They seem they seem like good questions to me. So great, um, but good questions do not overturn theories, uh, and. Uh, you are you are producing uh, good questions, but but that doesn't overturn what we know. Also, the things that you are saying, these these uh, curious features uh, about the universe, uh, for instance, Uranus being cattywampus on its axis or what have you. Um, while interesting, that doesn't actually challenge the age of the Earth at all. We don't believe that the Earth is four point five billion years old because of those things. Yes. Um, and so I, I don't I don't see how those would challenge a theory at all. And your question is methodologically, uh, at what point do I say, well, the theory's in trouble? Well, uh, the theory is in trouble when you bring up good challenges to the actual theory. <laughs> and, uh, and you haven't brought any uh, as near as I can tell. But I would like to take a moment to just read... Um, an internet uh, writer on some forum that doesn't matter. I'll put a link uh, in the show notes. I say this and I never actually put links in, but I'll try to remember to put a link in here. Um, but this is the type of thing that you could read in pretty much any uh, fifth grade science book uh, at this point in every uh, system of education, except maybe conservative Christian specialty schools. Um, the Earth uh, formed a persistent solid surface 4.54 billion years ago. Life expanded no less than 3.8 billion years ago. A billion years later, uh, cyan, uh, cyan, cyanobacteria started producing oxygen as a waste product. And uh, this started uh, precipitating iron uh, dissolved into the oceans uh, in the deposit we now uh, quarry for ore. Half a billion years uh, later, oxygen started to accumulate uh, in the atmosphere. And in another half a billion, uh, rose high enough to trigger an ecological collapse and uh, rebalancing, in which plants and animals came to dominate 
the biosphere. By half a billion years ago, complex life had spread through uh, the ocean and diversified into all the basic body uh, plants and still exist today, uh, and a lot uh, that don't. Simple swimmers gave rise to uh, armored swimmers, uh, then bony fish, uh, tetrapods, uh, amphibians, reptiles, and dinosaurs, all built on the same basic body shape. Uh, almost all of the Earth's known uh, petroleum was formed less uh, than 160 million years ago. Oil formed before that uh, from bacteria and plankton. But few older uh, deposits have been uh, protected from geologic uh, processes that destroy uh, hydrocarbons. Half uh of all known uh, reserves are less than 65 year, uh, million years old. By this time, mammals had appeared and some were well on their way to evolving into whales. Our line uh, lineage split off from the other apes about 5.5 million years ago. We've gone through roughly uh, 20 species since then uh, through the concept of, uh, though the concept of species uh, is our own invention. Neanderthals appeared in Europe about a quarter million years ago. If they were alive today, they could probably run uh, for Congress. That's not an insult. They might even do better than those now uh, in Congress. That is uh, an insult. Um, when more various uh, groups of humans started uh, domesticating crops uh, and animals between 16,000 and 8,000 years ago, uh, which is why most young earth um, wackadoos, his word, not mine, uh, now now argue for an earth around 10,000 uh, years old instead of ushers uh, increasingly ridiculous 6,000 years old. So uh, I, I just I went through this list of things and, you know, you might want to take it issue uh, to any of those. But these are things that actually speak to the age of the earth. Uh, there is so much material on the age of the earth through so many disciplines, geology, chemistry, um, uh, archeology, span um, uh, what, uh, what do you call the people who dig up bones, uh, the bone people? Paleontology. Yeah, paleontology. Um, pretty much every discipline that can speak to the uh, issue at all, all speaks to a very, old earth in the in uh, in the billions not even millions in the billions not definitely not thousands of years and none of the things that you point to uh would shake any of the evidences that we actually use uh to come up with that date and so what would it take how much of the type of evidence that you bring up uh would it be before i start questioning that uh an infinite amount because it's it's um it, it doesn't matter <laughs> uh that's not once again those are not things that make us uh know how old the earth is and i would say that when you start addressing those things then i would uh i would say that you have a case uh and if you can start convincing even the people on your side of the aisle that you are right uh, then you have a case that may be worth listening to to people who aren't on uh, the other side of the aisle. Until then, you just have some interesting questions 
uh, in mysteries that we don't know yet. And we're proposing uh, theories that that may or may not work within the natural universe. And we and we look at them and we test them and we see that that's wrong. And we try to try to figure out what's right through um, progressive steps of uh, our the evolution of our knowledge. Now, uh, the other thing that I would say to all of this is, yes, there are some things that we thought we knew about the solar system, and turns out maybe we don't. Uh, and so we we propose other suggestions. How does proposing God did it uh, help? How does that? How does? How is that not just another ad hoc proposition? Um, it, the, the difference is, instead of continuing the conversation and carrying on the research, it just ends the conversation and uh, means that, oh, well, I guess we don't have to look at it anymore because no way nature could have done it. God did it. And I'm not sure how much hubris it actually takes, but it seems like a lot of hubris it takes before you can rule out every conceivable uh, natural uh, possibility uh, and just insert in its place, God did it, and so we don't really have to think about it anymore. So I don't, I don't see how that helps. Um, so those are those would be my two responses. Okay. So okay. So I'll start by asking this. So the um, in terms of the age of the earth, yeah. So not everything. I think I only gave one thing that was geared towards that. There, there are other many other facts um, that I could that young earth creationists use you know like the magnetic field of of mercury for of uh, mercury uh proves that it has to be young this is a young earth creationist claim and there could be responses on that um and that's sort of just as there are on the planet earth um you know the moon is receding away from from the earth 3.8 centimeters this is a standard standard young earth creationist argument and stuff. so there are other um features of our solar system that can be appealed for that but it remember it, it's not so much i'm not trying to i'm not the one making the claim trying to prove hey the, the universe is young here that that's not my aim or even that god designed it but i i understand I, the way i wrote the blog because it's got to be adversarial I, I did argue that way to give you something to react to but but remember that my main goal in this was the skeptical argument that there is a bible error here uh, that that we discussed back in our show, in, implications of the atrocious passages. And remember, focusing on those two elements. So we discussed the first element, and here's the second element where, okay, the skeptic bears the burden of proof. They have, they have to prove positively that the Earth or the solar system is, in fact, billions of years old. Um, and that... And I'm trying to bring questions to that because your your answer was, hey, I've, I've got 100% knowledge that that is true, that there's no possibility that that could be false, that the solar nebular hypothesis that scientists give, that, that fully accounts for it, and it definitely is uh, 4.5 billion years old, meaning it contradicts the Bible. And, and for this objection, we can assume, yeah, the Bible does teach it's only 6,000, pretend the mytho-history thing failed, and it's it's pretend you succeeded there. You still have to prove this. And I, I'm trying to raise, put it this way, has anything... Do you want to? Would you retract that you're actually having a hundred percent knowledge? Like, could could there be any room for doubt? Because planetary scientists have been proven over and over again to be wrong. Like, it we can't as laymen have this. I want to dispel this false notion. Oh, the scientists 
have it all figured out. And look, we know for a fact the solar system formed this way. There's no chance that the, the Bible could be correct. I, I want to nip away at that, even if you think it's more probably true. Um, yeah. So no, the, the answer is no. All right. So I don't know that I would categorize uh, myself as 100% of, of anything to do with aging, but I think that it's a, a high enough level of confidence so that I don't need to question it uh, at this point. And so I would have to have a reason, a very good reason to question something that we know as well as aging. There are plenty of other things that we don't know well. And I, I wouldn't have any confidence in those things at all. But there are plenty of things that we do know well. And so once again, of the things that we do know well, I would have to have a reason to go back behind that and question it. And I do not have one. It seems to me the only reason that uh, anyone uh, has expressed for going back and looking behind that is a religious objection. Well, my Bible says this, or my religion says this, or I have to save something about my God. And so, therefore, I am going to propose a young earth uh, as opposed to an old earth. And that, that seems to be the only motivation I can find for anyone uh, to do that, because the only people who I know of who propose any type of young earth uh, ideology or uh, who tries to cast doubt on the age of the earth are people who have a religious motivation. Uh, that in and of itself uh, makes me very suspicious uh, of that entire enterprise. And so um, I do not share those reasons and motivations. But once again, this is why I say, rather than just dismissing your questions out of uh, turn, uh, what I suggest is that you take these um, observations to other religious people who think, at least theologically, like you do, but who disagree with you on the science. Uh, and I think that that might be an interesting conversation. Um, and so, is A, is there any reason why you have not done that yet? And or B, have you done that? And can you point to that resource so that um, we can we can look at that? Uh, so, so, yeah, so I, I think that you're kind of turning it on me, so I will answer, but remember, you're, you're getting, you're methodologically flawed here. I, I think it's called burden shifting or something, but so, so in the answer, have I looked into it? Uh, yes, uh, the NASA website, um, Universe Today, uh, I've looked at, um, you know, I, I can put them up as sources. So the, I have, the, the question, the question, go ahead isn't whether you've looked into them. I'm not, I'm not questioning that. The question is whether you have uh, had some engagement with theologians that you respect who disagree with you on this issue. Uh, th on those particular issues from a theologian, no. Um, I've just well, looked at have, have you engaged with have you engaged with secular scientists then because reading yes. reading information is not the same as engaging. What uh, scientists have you engaged with on this? Uh, what do you mean by engage? Like email? Had had conversations uh, with or communications with, and presented these things as a challenge and received answers from them. That's that's what I mean by engage. Okay, so so none. It, it's all been pure reading. But again, I'm I'm not the one making the claim here. So that's what I mean about, and I'm not done my final research. I, this isn't uh, an area that I'm 
as passionate about it. I just think, oh, it's a cool question to, to ask. I'm right. No, no, I understand that. But you're asking about my methodological um, reasoning here. And the, the method is there have been many branches, I would say every branch, yes. of research touching on aging that all say the same thing. Okay. And so get- there is an overwhelming... Uh, body of science and consensus telling me one thing and the only people who seem to be trying to tell me another thing are people who are religiously motivated okay so so i'm gonna get to that so i've got those three things listed but just before we do just in a a short sentence so okay so on the aging this seems to be what you really want to focus on um the most but just okay so you said you're not 100 percent. great that that's not what you said in the prior show that wonderful where would you say you're at now like what where no i don't i mean i don't think i don't think in those terms i mean i know that you think in those terms it doesn't matter whether i'm 100 percent or 97.14 percent or that's not i am convinced enough so that i am no longer researching the matter so it's proven beyond reasonable doubt you would say so 90 between 100 okay well it's proven beyond my ability to reason and doubt it uh, there, there may be some people smarter than me who can look at the evidence and reasonably doubt it, but I have not seen any uh, non-conservative uh, religious people who are scientists who have who have done that, who look at it and doubt it. Yeah, I'm gonna. I, that's so. That's your one of your reasons, right? I'm, I'm gonna get to your three specific reasons, but I'm, I'm just kind of trying to assess where your you are at because you are a person. You, you've got a you made made a claim, I thought, um, but now you're well, seeing, saying, "Well, I'm 95 percent," but that's that's not. Yeah, I'm. I, see, I don't. Once again, I don't really. These percentage numbers don't really mean anything to me. I don't speak in those terms. I would say that I believe that the age of the Earth is uh, 4.5 billion years or thereabouts, uh, as opposed to a, a handful of thousands of years. How convinced am I of that? Really convinced. Uh, so but, that's but are you, so, okay put it this way are, are you just saying you have psychological because psychological certainty is not enough to make a claim like you, you would you go to a christian and say you're wrong I, i'm very convinced you're wrong and i can, well yes i am very convinced that you're wrong if you think that the age of the earth is measured in thousands rather than billions of years okay. uh but i am also not a scientist right uh, right so i can't i can't I can't give you the same types of uh, evidences that a science would give you, a scientist would give you, but I can give you the, the reading material that will help you understand how the scientists in all of the disciplines think. And if if you can follow along with that well enough, then I, I think that the reasonable person would also be convinced by that. But now, if you don't think that scientists who spend their lives studying studying this are credible sources for this information and you think that theologians are then i would say that we have a methodological problem there okay okay so um so that's great let let me just answer these quickly okay so forgetting about the age though what about the second aspect do you what about your confidence in the naturalist explanation or formation of the solar system um versus some kind of in 
intelligent design input needing to be there, regardless of who it is or, or who that designer is, are, are you convinced that the secular, secular naturalistic explanation explains the entirety of our solar system? Uh, yes, to the extent that I can talk about the formation of our solar system at all. Um, you know, you can you can ask that about the universe or anything like that. What you're saying is, are you convinced that there's a uh, there's there's no designer who designed the universe versus a designer who did? Um, I, I and so the the fact of the matter is, I don't be, I don't believe in your God, and I don't believe in any God that uh, spoke the universe into existence. And so my certainty of whether it's uh, a naturalistic process or not is in step with my certainty of whether or not there's a God. And once again, that is not spoken in terms of percentages. It's in terms of uh, my conviction of this point to the degree that I don't feel like I need to look into it any further. Okay, so me, the, the percentages are, are helpful ways for me to understand your, your degree of confidence, because you, you are able to make a claim based on what you know. Forget about whether you can debate the science or not, you, you, based on what you know at this moment, you said you're convinced, I can claim Christians are wrong in saying the age of the solar system, not the universe, the solar system. And you can also make a claim the solar system wasn't designed, it, it was purely natural processes through the solar nebular thing. You seem to... I don't, I don't, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not talking about specific theories here. Uh, as far as how the solar system was formed, uh, if you're asking, if the question is, is that a naturalistic process or a uh, God design uh, process, uh, the answer to that is it's the same percentage that I believe that there's a God. Okay. So I, I cannot, I cannot have a different percentage on that. I cannot say that. You know, my my uh, the my belief that God doesn't exist is, you know, maybe at 95 percent. But my belief that the uh, solar system was designed by God is maybe 45 percent. That wouldn't make any sense. Gotcha. OK, well, how about this? I'll say it this way. Um, how convinced are you that only unintelligent natural processes were involved um, in the formation of our solar system? I am a materialist. So, again, the, to the same degree that I am convinced of materialism uh, is the same degree that I can answer that question. Uh, can I be convinced of something besides material? It's It may be possible. I don't know how it would be done. Uh, I think there's a philosophical um, uh, thing to get over here. I mean, I, would, I, I couldn't be convinced of it with argumentation. You would just have to show me uh, something concrete, and that's something that's not in your purview to do. You can't you you can't produce that or else you'd have produced it. And so by argumentation, could I be convinced that there's something other than material? I don't think so. I, 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 I believe that I'm probably beyond being convinced by argumentation of something like that. And therefore, if I am if I cannot be convinced by argumentation of something like that, you can't then shake my confidence in that by bringing up some features of the solar system that I don't have answers for. I can raise far more questions about things I don't know than you can. But the things I don't know don't change my confidence in basic things that I have a pretty good grasp of. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. And, and thank you. That was actually a really helpful answer. Um, okay, so um, last question before I get 
start into addressing your, your main reasons. And I, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding your position. So, um, okay, so have you, would you say, so the, the reasons that you gave um, don't actually speak to the nature of the scientific evidence or data itself. Um, would you say that the scientific evidence and the data play plays any role in why you believe um, that the universe is 4.5 billion years old and, and, and that sort of thing? Or is it all external reasons? Like, oh, well, I have scientific consensus. I have, I believe in materialism. I, I believe that other evidences outside of astronomy, like, you know, No, history, no, history. It's, it's, it's the scientific data. I think I started with the scientific data. So it's, the scientific data is the first, first level of this. Um, uh, it's it's not whether I believe there's a God or not. That's not the first level of this at all. When I look at um, when I look at the data, uh, that all of the data in all of the disciplines seems to point to an uh, an old naturally forming solar system. Okay. So all right. So, so that's 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 first and foremost. Now, do we have? Do, are there things we don't know within that set? Sure, but. Uh, yes, now, now we're talking about a synthesis of data from a number of fields, a consensus of people who are experts at looking at that data. So you don't just, I don't just have to take my layman's word for it when I, when I read over this material. I can see that other people who know what they're talking about and doing also agree. And it, even the people who disagree with me on the theological questions, uh, most of those agree on uh, the, uh, the data as well in the interpretation. So there's, I don't have any reason to question the data, but the data is, uh, is king, it's first and foremost. Okay, okay, so I would agree with, I would agree with that. I think that's an important step, but I'm just trying to distinguish the explanatory scope so the explanatory scope of our discussion here with, with this claim is solely looking at planetary science, the level of planetary science of our solar system and that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's pointing to historical evidences or geological evidences would be outside of the scope of our discussion. Now, I think you're absolutely right that you need to factor in all the evidences, but it, I'm just saying that's outside facts it's outside the limited scope of what we're saying so I, i'm just curious within the scope of, of astronomy and you know planetary science and the solar system are you convinced at all by the evidence there that number one the solar system is 4.5 billion years old um and or is solely the result of unintelligent natural processes or does all your confidence come from other other fields of study, geology and, and history and paleontology and that sort of thing. Yeah. So we're talking about the data. I don't know why you would artificially limit me to um, just the solar system data or the, the astronomical data for the solar system. I don't, that, that seems a little bit artificial to me. So again, I don't really think in those terms. Uh, I think that as far as the age of the earth, if we're talking about the Earth itself, we should look at information having to do with the Earth. And I don't think that astronomical data uh, is is the strongest evidences of the Earth age. Uh, I think that when we look at the Earth itself, uh, we don't have to look up at the sky 
to find evidence of millions of years of development at the very least. Um, so, uh, you know, when we do look up at the sky, I don't find anything that contradicts that. But the first place that I would look if I'm aging the Earth is the Earth, not the stars. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna so, I'm gonna I'm gonna preference geological data and chemi chemistry data uh, over astronomical observations and whether Uranus is cattywampus. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I will I will say methodologically for the audience, I I I don't agree with you saying you preference. It it, it matters. Do they speak to the hypothesis or not? And they're they're all equal in that regards. I I find, but. It's important. You can't just just look at one set of evidence alone. You eventually, if you want the truth, you have to look at all of the relevant evidence from the other fields and that sort of thing. Um, but it is proper to have a, a scope of, of study. Uh, planetary scientists are not, uh, you know, paleontologists. They, they're not experts in that field and that sort of thing. But if you want a well-rounded hypothesis, you, you do have to look at all of that data. I just wanted to know, like. If, if in isolation at that within that scope, if there is any evidence at play. So, so for example, there have been radiometric datings that have dated objects in the solar system to 4.5 billion years old. That that would be an evidence in favor of the solar system. And I was just wondering if anything like that played a role. But it, it seems not for for you. It's it's outside evidences, geology on the Earth. Or geology is not outside. <laughs> geology is as inside as you get. Um, astronomy is outside <laughs> uh, if what you're trying to do is uh, date the Earth. But that said, uh, astrometrical uh, evidence is there too. I can't I can't speak to it maybe as much off the cuff as I would be able to maybe geological or uh, ra radiometric uh, dating. And even even then, I would want to take a few hours to cram for the session if I if I really wanted to talk about that. But let me let me just ask with regard to the astronomical data because you seem to be uh, questioning that. Do you know of any uh, non-religious uh, uh, physicists or astronomers who uh, claim that the universe is old in the order of billions of years, but that our solar system is young in the order of thousands of years? Any any secular scientists? Yes. Uh, no, I, I know of no one. It's, okay. it's so this is this is a fairly idiosyncratic um, theory. Uh, it 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 doesn't seem to be one embraced by the scientific community, um, and I I honestly am not versed in theories. I've I've heard many young Earth theories, uh, and those are usually people who are claiming young universe as well as young Earth. So they're not. They're not bifurcating the two. And what you are doing is a little bit different. You're, you're giving a nod to old universe uh, in the order of billions of years, but then saying, but maybe our universe is more in the, our, our, I'm sorry, our solar system is more like thousands of years. And that's, that's just an idea that I have had no interaction with uh, at any level. So, it, you know, if that is a good theory, I have never heard it expressed by people who express theories about this. I yeah, I, I do think it's an it's an utter, utterly unique thing, and I, I just want to say this this isn't my theory. Uh, I actually do believe on a balance of probabilities that 
the solar system is probably old and that sort of thing. But it, I'm just, it's, it's a methodological thing of how we assess the evidence. And you've raised this great point about outside evidence. So when, I, when I'm, I've defined the scope of our study as this planetary level or solar system level. Um, but I actually come to the opposite conclusion when I'm talking paleontology or geology, uh, geoscience. Um, so there's a contradiction there. I, I think the evidence is more likely that the Earth is old when I'm studying those evidences, when I'm within those spheres of study. Um, and that contradicts with this thing. But we have to put it, that's my point, is we can put it together and assess assess these things and then ask, well, how do they interrelate? Because it, you can't have, it's not like the Earth could be floating around without the solar system and, you know, for billions of years. They, they can't be separated. They're, that question is linked in the same way that in, uh, you can separate the question of the solar system potentially from the origin of the galaxy or the universe. You know, you, you could, unless you postulate some weird supernatural thing, I don't know. But um, so, so, yeah, so I agree methodologically. That's a great point that you need to look at all the evidence. You can have a definable scope. And within the definable scope, the evidence, you could conclude, well, it's more probable that the the theory is wrong, but in light of all of the evidence, the wider set of all the relevant evidence that speaks to that hypothesis, overall, uh, it looks like the solar system is old. And I would actually agree with you on that. I, I believe the solar system, the Earth is probably old, and by extension, that means the solar system is old. But I think there are reasonable doubts uh, and questioning there. So. All right, so, so the next major thing is the scientific consensus argument that you give. And I want to take issue with, with actually, well, with, with the evidences. I, see, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you mind if I just probe, and I won't respond at all, but with these other evidences from geology and paleontology, you, you read a quote, you read assertions that these evidences prove the Earth is old. Um, if you're willing, and it doesn't hurt at all, if you're willing to do this, could you maybe just describe three of the, the evidences that you've actually studied and that from these other fields that do convince you the Earth is in fact old um, yeah, and why you don't think... Geology, paleontology, well. radiometric dating. Um, don't don't ask me to give a lecture on these, but I've I've read individual books on these things at different points in my life and I find uh, I find the evidence pretty convincing you have to understand that as a Christian I was a young earther a whole nine yards uh, and I was convinced that I was wrong about that as a Christian so this isn't this isn't something that changed when I became an atheist this is something that changed when I was a Christian and it was a hard change to make in fact it was uh, uh, frankly devastating uh, so, uh, yes, I, things that I found troubling that would that would be uh, have an effect on my faith are things that I deep dived uh, in as hard as I could uh, intellectually and academically at the time. So this is this is one of those things um, that was very important to my development at, the, at that time. Uh, and I found answers that I wasn't looking for. I was I was looking for answers that went the other way. So this wasn't this wasn't due to some preconceived bias or whatever. Um, 
this 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 went against my biases. Now, you know, that's that's some time ago now, and I don't I don't know that I can take a a, a test on it uh, today. I would I would have to do some cramming. But if you ask me about the areas that I um, have studied the most that I found convincing: geology, paleontology, um, uh, chemistry, uh, not as much um, astronomy. Okay. Um, all right. That, yeah, that's cool. I, I'm not going to press beyond. I, I just wanted to see, because obviously young earth creationists, everything you just said, they, they have responses to that in the same I've way. seen them. Sorry, in, in the same way in astronomy, there are responses to these problems. And I, yeah, I, I was just trying to get, well, how, how did you make that leap? I mean, like radiometric dating, young, standard young earth creationist response, well, there's three assumptions, they question those three assumptions, and the flood plays a role in, in geology and uh, explaining the various geological features. Right, 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 but you're forgetting I was a young earther, okay, at the time at the time of my study, so I get, I know the young uh, earthers' responses, uh, or at least I knew at the time. I found uh, the study of sciences in these disciplines, though, for myself, uh, to to show overwhelmingly that those responses were were wrong, uh, empty, and maybe even in some cases dishonest. So once again, not the conclusions that I wanted to come to, but you're you're making an assumption the wrong way around. Uh, you're saying, but you should think about the fact that young earthers have responses to this. You're talking to a young earther who started with those responses. It's science that has a response. Uh, that young earthers aren't really uh, addressing. Uh, and so I, I think that, you know, you don't have to convince me of how the young earther would respond to this stuff. I think that um, they respond to this stuff in a, in a very dishonorable way. Gotcha. Okay. And fair, fair is fair. Before I move on to the next thing, I'll, I'll give my take. And it, I'm in the same boat as you. If you press me for specific details I, I wouldn't be able to go to the level like i remember studying one issue 10 years ago up to 12 rounds of response counter response response counter response and i think that was on the grand canyon and how the formation of that mm -hmm. um so yeah absolutely but my my thing the thing that tipped tipped me finally over because I, I think you're you're wrong young earth creationists are up to date on the science they respond to the very latest in science it's just that on the level of geology and that i find that they very probably don't respond well um because they, they do have this unifying grand unifying theory i i kind of i'm attracted to the hydroplate theory of walt brown which even among young earth creationists he's seen as a pariah answers in genesis says ah, don't believe in that believe in our thing you know catastrophic plate tectonics or something like that um but the thing was, it was this ad hoc uh, element to the creationist responses because there was too many, I found that there was too many ad hoc components in order to answer these things. Too many non-evidenced, just so assumptions or explanations in order to make all of the, the detailed facts work and fit the flood theory as opposed to just the, the secular old earth um, model. And that's that's what sort of tipped the tides for me. And um, that's what I've been trying to hint at with 
but on the level of the solar system, it, it's almost like it's becoming the opposite. Um, so, yeah, at what point does that scale tip? Maybe I was too premature in rejecting young Earth creationism on the level of geology, or maybe um, we're not being we're not being um, consistent in the level of astronomy. I, that's the question that I was trying to raise there. Um, yeah, but I, I just think that um, it's the same playbook. Um, from the from the young earth apologists, they're not really that interested in uh, studying the science as a as a pure art. Uh, they're interested in poking holes uh, in established theory, and that's an easy that's a fairly easy thing to do. Uh, you know, you get very frustrated. Um, when you're in a conversation and you think the only thing the other person is doing is just trying to poke holes in whatever you say, that's that's a fairly cheap and easy uh, tactic that doesn't do much to progress conversation. It can help you win debates, but it doesn't progress conversation. Uh, and so I don't find that the young earth scientists are really interested in doing science and coming up with answers. They're, they have their answers, and they're just trying to do uh, a destructive type of uh, questioning that puts everything into doubt. Now, the fact of the matter is science does have answers, good answers, for most of the stuff that they've poked at in the past. And so they're just looking for something else to poke at. Okay, here's some astronomy stuff. Uh, they, they don't seem to be as strong in, the, in that, so let's let's poke there. Uh, they're not actually offering anything useful uh, to the science of understanding uh, solar system formation, though. Uh, and so I do I do find um, that a a very non scientific and somewhat reprehensible way to go about it. Um, I have a much easier time listening to the people that are wrestling with hard questions and doing science rather than people who are simply trying to destroy science so that they can make room for their crackpot theory. Gotcha. The religion. So that's, yeah, that's your third objection, this, this religious motivation. And in, in some cases, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the answers in Genesis, they're presuppositionalists, uh, at least, Ken Ham is and Jason Lyle are, um, and they they make no bones about it. Look, we all have a bias, we all have a worldview, and um, I I actually so in the in the first place I actually think that's not a problem. It, it it ultimately comes down to the data and how we interpret that or how we assess that data, and and that's why I I, I like using the inference criteria and that I've, I've couched this in terms of the ad hoc and the explanatory scope criteria, and that, that's what's kind of come up here uh, the most. But um, religious motivations can be useful. I, I think it's good. I'm, I'm glad that young earth creationists are out there, even if they're totally wrong and, and they're thinking outside of the box. And, and I think that religious motivations and even anti-religious motivations can be helpful uh, and allow us to see things from a different perspective and learn new evidence in the first place. I mean, Charles Darwin went out and, and got new evidence um, for for evolution, and that was something that destroyed it. We learned something as a result. Or, you know, there are atheist scientists in the 20th century desperate to prove evolution. It caused them to lie and fudge 
the data at times with the Piltdown Man or something, but nonetheless, their bias gave us some credible scientific facts. They, they did find legitimate findings, and that contributed to our understanding. How you know Now we can look, what is the data? How do we assess that data? And that's fundamentally what matters the most to me. Um, it's only once, you know, some, if you can prove that a religious or anti-religious mo- a, a motivation, whether it's religious or not, if someone's motivation, their pet theories or worldview is uh, contaminating the evidence, like with Piltdown Man, that was forged evidence, then I have a problem with it. But um, I, I do also just want to, even though I, I I do disagree with what you're doing, it's not the Young Earth creation, that's a sort of a straw man. They don't just poke holes in theories. They actually propose their own models. They make predictions that have been proven to be true. Russ Humphreys, someone I I disagree fundamentally with, he he has a white hole cosmology, um, cosmological model that proves the the universe, not the solar system, the universe is 6,000 years old. Um, I, I disagree with his model, but I um what the heck was i going to say there um i lost my you you think that he is doing legitimate science or something like that yes that, that he is engaging with legitimate science and contribute he, he published his work in a peer-reviewed paper what walt brown he he hasn't contributed to peer-reviewed papers this is one of a, a criticism of him that i think is true but nonetheless his hydroplate theory he makes scientific predictions in advance and it, it's been published for free on his website, and they're confirmed. Um, a lot of times his, his predictions turn out to be right, and they're in contrast to the what the secular scientists of the days said would be predicted or should, we should find, and he turned out to be right. So they, they are putting their money where their mouth is, and, and sometimes some of their predictions are falsified. That has to be mentioned as well. It's not like the creationists are always perfect any more than secular scientists but the yeah i just i would i would disagree with you it's not a fair criticism to say young earth creationists love them or hate them they are contributing some kind of positive contribution well uh, you know i i i might disagree with you about the level of contribution um they contribute i mean there's always going to be the exception to rules there I'm sure our flat earthers who have published in peer-reviewed papers, surely at least one of them has gotten through. That doesn't mean that they are uh, doing legitimate science. Um, and so I, I think that young earthers are kind of in that uh, camp. And, you know, if you play around with beakers long enough, you might come up with something that someone can use. But if you start your research with illegitimate biases... I have no faith that you're going to get to the end of your conclusions without biases. Uh, and so I don't, I don't know when we should expect those biases to go away. I think that the biases go all the way through how we set the, how we set up the experiments, the things that we uh, expect, how we interpret uh, what we see. It's just, it's everything. Yeah. And you and I are not in a position to do those experiments ourselves. We have to depend on the integrity of the scientists who are doing that. And whether it's a pro-religious or anti-religious bias, I throw those results out out of hand. Uh, I don't I don't have any more patience for uh, 
anti-religious scientists who only are doing something to try to disprove a god. I I don't. I think we can throw both of those extremes out and just look at, uh, you know, make judgments about who is doing the purest kind of science, not whether they're a Christian or not, but who is doing the purest kind of science for the uh, right reasons and with as uh, few, uh, you know, motivational pressures as possible uh, uh, toward bias, and we can get a large enough sample of those people, and that's where consensus comes in. And so if we just took, you know, our two or three favorite scientists, we would still have the bias problem. But when you when you look at the hundreds of published works in the consensus of hundreds, if, if not thousands of scientists on a given subject, then you have a way of filtering that out. And so think of it a little bit like um, Yelp reviews or Amazon reviews. Uh, if you if you see a product and it has 12 reviews uh, forget about it. Uh, even if they're honest, uh, you know, they're not shields for the company. It's not enough. And you can't know, you know, maybe seven of them are, are extremely biased. It's not, it's not a sample size that you can work with, but if you've got, uh, 40,000 reviews, there's not enough bias in the world that can ultimately sway the, the, the 3.5 or 4.0, uh, review number that you get there when you've got that many reviews and so the consensus makes a difference in this scientific endeavor so the the first thing we do is we try to use our own intellect to understand as much of this stuff as we can and then we try to you know with the scientists that we choose to read the books that we buy the blog posts we look we try to land on the ones that we think are the most honest and have the fewest uh bias pressures toward their opinions and finally we look at the broader uh, community, and we can kind of begin to trust the handful of scientists we've chosen when the broader community tends to uh, be the same as their opinions. But when you've got these outliers who have strong biases, and then they've got these unique opinions to try to poke holes in the consensus, um, you don't have real science being done. You know, you might can say that, well, accidentally along the way, something was beneficial there. But that is not the process that we should use methodolo- methodologically for choosing uh, the people whose opinion we will trust in areas that we cannot fully understand by ourselves. Yeah, yeah, I, I think for the most part, I, I fully agree with what you're saying. So I, I'll, on this point, it, it's crucial to, to look at both sides. I mean, I've got it when I when I was looking up this stuff and I. My stu- as I said, I don't want to. Please don't think my study is insufficient. I'm not writing up a teleological argument. I'm I'm going to get into this full scale probably in a couple of years once I, you know, I'm going to do the cosmological, then the moral argument, then the uh, or either the argument of consciousness or the ontological or vice versa, and then I might get into the teleological argument. That's that's a couple of years away, but um, I definitely will look full scale at that time. I haven't done so yet, but. I do constantly, before I give something, I try my best with whatever time scale I had, which was about a week. I I don't know when I reached out to you to do this show. So my entire study came about within that week. um, And I looked at the Young Earth Creationist side, but I've got Talk Origins right there. I love the website Talk Origins. Sometimes it's a little outdated, but it's great. They respond to specific claims. You got your point, counterpoint. um, And then... You know, sometimes you'll get a contradiction because it's outdated or something. So 
okay, I went to a neutral source. I went to NASA's website. Will you tell me about these space missions or the ESU, ESA, um, European Space Agency? What, what did you guys find in your your probes? And, oh, okay, it turns out the young Earth creationists are right. Or it turns out talk origins are right and stuff. Like, first you establish the facts by looking at various sources and then applying a proper methodology to assess these these claims. So, I, yeah, I, I think we f were fully on board. It, it, so the most biased person on the earth, I don't care. If, if you present something and I can determine it is in fact a fact, and I know how to assess facts uh, for myself through a proper methodology, yeah, you, you could be the most biased atheist. Richard Dawkins is the most biased anti-theist in the world. Uh, he's got a lot of great facts in his show, The Greatest Show on Earth, in his book, um, The Greatest Show on Earth. I, I can't take that away from him, you know. Um, all right, cool. Scientific consensus, though. This is your last point, and I, I do want to challenge this. We're not. We're probably not going to agree on this. I, I think scientific consensuses are practically worthless. Um, the only thing they're good for is as an initial evidence. Okay, well, where where do the experts lie as an initial factor of going okay there's there's probable there's probably some good evidence here to look into but if that's your whole basis for believing something if that's your pretend that's your only claim or then you didn't have you know the other evidences um or something like that and or materialism art philosophical arguments for materialism all you had was the scientific consensus says this. It's been proven over and over again. The scientific consensus, even within this particular scope, has been wrong over and over and over again. It, it's to the point where it's 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 very weak evidence evidence of, of anything, in my opinion. It just says there's probably something to he see here, but go and look look at it for yourself. Find out what those facts are. Don't just follow, well, the scientific consensus is um, so the solar system is old. I'll just believe that. I, I don't think that is a good reason to believe something, especially when we've seen the scientific consensus in this particular field is repeatedly wrong and having to reformulate. They, they don't know what they're talking about in a lot of cases. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably not the healthiest way to look at scientific consensus though so um just just for this the sake of explaining this point uh, let me uh change the focus to medical consensus okay um because i've had a lot of experience with doctors <laughs> so if you if you think that you've got something wrong with you you think there might be a problem you know and you could think that for a number of reasons you might be hypochondriac you always think you've got a problem um one of the first things available to you uh these days is the internet you can you can actually there's actually enough information at layman's level so that you can begin to look things up you know what people with these symptoms uh, you know, who've had these same complaints, what it, what's been their problem. So you can begin to look that up and you can, you know, find some terms and some potential diagnosis. And then you can maybe look deeper and find some medical journals and read, the, read those and uh, start to form uh, some opinion around that. But here's the problem. You're not a doctor. And I don't care how much Internet reading you do. You are not going to earn an, an MD. 
uh, or, uh, from from that. <laughs> uh, so uh, you have to recognize the limits, your own limits of being able to understand things that are outside of uh, your your specialty. So if you do not recognize that, you're just going to be in trouble. And if you're one of those people who diagnoses themselves and believes your diagnosis over any other uh, medical uh, expert's diagnosis, just go ahead and buy your funeral plot now uh, because you are going to need it uh, much sooner than you think. You are a fool. And that's that's fine. World's full of fools. Not illegal to be a fool. But I'm, I'm just saying that that person I can pretty much dismiss as a fool if they are trying to do all of their research and decide for themselves things that require expertise that they do not have. So that's where you, that's where you have to move on to actually seeing a doctor. All right. So you, you're not going to see all the doctors. You can't see all the doctors. That's crazy, but you're going to have to within the area that you have uh, and, you know, within the people who take your uh, insurance and then when, you know, within the people whose bio picture that you like, you've, you're going to have to narrow it down and choose your champion, you know, and you might have uh, one or two others that you might use as a second and third opinion, but you're going to have to n narrow the scope of who you see and who you trust. Well, once again, you're only seeing, uh, let's be realistic, one doctor. Most people don't see two doctors or get a second opinion. You're going to see one doctor that you semi-randomly chose, and that's going to be your medical opinion. Now, is that is that a good sampling of all of the knowledge of medical expertise? No, it really isn't. But it's a better it's a better opinion than yours. <laughs> because at least now this is a person with some medical expertise. And you might say, well, you know, that doctor disagrees with my diagnosis. Well, again, you are a fool and I'm done talking to you. Uh, but there is still room to say, uh, you know, there's there's there are a lot of opinions on this. and I'm just not sure. And so what is the next uh, level you can go to from seeing a doctor? Uh, you can look uh, a little bit deeper and find medical consensus own a thing. And once again, this is a lot of doctors who uh, are in this um, specialty, who are outside of your area, who maybe your insurance wouldn't pay for, but you have a way of kind of polling them and in, in using the expertise of doctors outside of your system to get a better answer than what you could come up with and possibly even better than what your individual doctor can come up with. And that's kind of the hierarchy of how we uh, figure out uh, difficult things that are outside of our expertise that we cannot uh, ourselves fully understand. Now, that's fairly straightforward. Um, and this is, this is kind of the system that people use in figuring out their medical issues. And when they tend to go outside of that, let's say Steve Jobs, for instance, uh, in his form of very curable cancer, Steve Jobs died a fool. Steve Steve Jobs actually uh, I like Steve Jobs I'm here on um, but Steve Jobs had a curable kind of cancer uh, and if he had taken a more traditional type of treatment he could be alive today uh, but Steve Jobs being who he was um, went went out on his own and I uh, I'm hoping that he was rich enough and there were enough people in his life where he got had a 
you know, some funeral arrangements in advance. Um, and so he's exactly the kind of fool that I'm describing. Now, if we if we just move all of that knowledge that we've gained back to scientific knowledge, it is it is truly the exact exact same thing because we're talking about things that are as as a layman outside of our area of specialty that require specialty to fully understand. And so if we want to ask a question like, uh, you know, what is the age of the universe? You know, we can do our own research and, and try that. Uh, well, you know, it looks pretty old or it looks pretty young. Uh, it seems intuitive to me. You know, I picked up some rocks outside. Uh, you know, they looked kind of, I'm going to say it's 5,000 years. Um, but then maybe, uh, maybe you uh, find one or two people who seem to know a little bit more about aging. Maybe you like Richard Dawkins. Uh, maybe you like the sound of his voice. Maybe you like, um, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe maybe there are one or two uh, that you trust and you look at what they have to say and you recognize, wait a minute, they're saying something that's radically different than what I observed by looking at the rocks in my backyard. Well, what do, you know, professional rock looker atters uh, think, uh, you know, instead of pose, uh, polling two or three, let's see if I can poll uh, a thousand of these guys. Uh, now, what do they think? Well, it seems like 79% of, of these cats uh, think uh, who are looking at the same rocks and actually more rarefied rocks are coming up uh, with a similar uh, uh, answer to each other. This is now information that you cannot reasonably ignore. Is the doctor wrong? Sometimes, yes. Is the consensus of medical uh, uh, science wrong sometimes? Absolutely. People die. Uh, no, you should not eat uh, bread as a food group every day. That's stupid. Uh, we know better. Um, oh, man. Will an apple a day really keep the doctor away? No, it won't. But if, you're, <laughs> but if you were uh, looking at the the overall medical advice and consensus of using the best medical knowledge that we have uh, on the planet right now, your chances of surviving past 80 are much better than if you go it alone. And the same is true with uh, our scientists. Are, are you, are you going to get some wrong uh, answers that need to be adjusted over time? Yes, you will, but you will be much closer to right uh, by going uh, with the consensus than by looking at rocks by yourself and weighing them and trying to figure out how old the universe is. That is uh, fascinating. So you've managed to change my mind a little bit. Um, I think that's a great uh, point. You're you're absolutely right. Um, though I so so yeah, the scientific consensus thing isn't worthless. It, it could potentially be used to push uh, someone over uh, into believing something. And you know that that example of the medical thing. Is true, but I, I will qualify it with this. It, it depends on the nature of that consensus. I wouldn't say it's it's the same in all fields. In fact, you agree with me. You you think theology is just a non-field, so who cares what the expert consensus is? Yeah, there. but we can go with history. I dis I disagree with um, uh, experts in history, and I'm not a, I'm not an expert historian by any means. But I think that, for instance, the criteria of um, so of uh, embarrassment is a wrong criteria. I think I think that that's bad. Now, other historians do agree, uh, other historians as if I were one of them, historians do agree with that, so that is not a completely idiosyncratic idea, but mm -hmm. enough historians use that criteria so that it is a legitimate 
criteria for that field. I happen to disagree that it should be a, a legitimate uh, criteria. And if I'm going to disagree with a, a consensus, even if it's you know a s- smaller consensus, uh, you know maybe 52% uh, still a consensus. If I'm going to disagree with that, I'm going to have to have really good reasons to do it. And I'm going to have to be able to make a very strong case and still have enough humility uh, to recognize that I might be wrong. But yeah, I'm not saying that you should never disagree with the consensus, but if you're going to do that, you will have done an awful lot of research and you're going to have to have a really good reason uh, to think that uh, most of the other guys are idiots. Yeah, it's uh, so it, it depends, right? So yeah, so I, I agree that Jesus mythicist is a great example, right? So you have to assess, um, you're a Jesus mythicist, the vast majority of uh, historians will say that's ridiculous, whether they're atheists or not. I actually don't agree with saying, oh, dismissing mythicists as ridiculous. I, I think that laymen can have a sufficient degree of knowledge um, through layman resources, as long as you're a real seeker. Look, you, you've looked at a sufficient amount to, to know what's there. I, I don't think it has to be overwhelming, like you're saying, but I think l- laymen have at their fingertips a, a sufficient amount of data to make a an informed decision even if that goes against the consensus on that matter um with the medical field um i i think i would agree with you there that i would probably side with the medical consensus because they've a proven track record in that field of being reliable in general in terms of the consensus opinion i might be a little bit more iffy iffy on coronavirus it's new the researchers are learning new things about that i wouldn't automatically assume you know they flip-flop they tell you to wear masks one time then they tell you not to wear masks then they tell you things so that there are a bunch of issues um that can get involved right and and let me let me just say on the coronavirus i agree with you i think that uh, it's so this is one of those areas though um there is some consensus starting to be developed over time earlier on it was more all over the map yeah. And I think that uh, one of the reasons that it was okay to question the consensus, especially early on, is because good science wasn't being done. And, and we, could watch, we could watch it in real time and we could say, look, that's not good science. You didn't come about that uh, by, the, the, by the regular methods. And in fact, I would say that I'm not going to trust any, vi- uh, any uh, vaccine uh, that comes out first either because we are rushing through this process yeah. of uh, trying to find a cure. And we're skipping steps left and right uh, and, uh, and shortcutting the process. There is a reason the process is a pro- is the process. And, and by shortcutting it or going faster, either you're saying, well, then the process is stupid and we should be able to do this for all the medicines, or you're just admitting that you're doing a bad job uh, at good science. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so there, that would be the the cap. You have to do some some kind of assessment of of the field and its ability to for the consensus to come to reliable conditions. And uh, just the last example, the field of cosmology. That's what I'm studying hardcore right now. It's not the solar system stuff. That was just sort of a, a bonus that I thought about. But um, yeah, the field of cosmology. I am not a cosmologist. Dear goodness, you, David, your eyes glazed over when I was going over those 
basic planetary facts. Um, that's me uh, with Cosmo. I do not understand the math mathematics behind it. I don't care about the mathematics. I just assume, hey, if, I just follow the consensus. If you guys say this works mathematically, I believe you. I, I don't understand the formula. I don't care. Um, I just believe you. Um, unless I find someone co contradicts it or something. But yeah, I, that's a limit to me. I'm trying my best, but that's, I'm limited. I, I, no matter what I do, I'm not going to be able to understand it at that level. I can understand it at a sufficient level to make an understanding on a, you know, I, okay, what is the model? What is, what is it alleged to do? What are certain problems with the model? How do you respond to those those models. I mean, Skydive Phil, thank you so much for, for those videos. He responds to the, he has the experts themselves responding to the objections. And that's, that's odd for the most part. You just find them, here's my theory and here's my model and that's it. So his, his videos have been really helpful in seeing potential responses and that. So with, with that, I, I have an inherent limit. No matter, no matter what I think, I, I will only ever be able to be 70% convinced um, that the, in terms of the universe, did it begin to exist or is it eternal? Even with all of the, the things, I've put a self-imposed limit based on my, first of all, there's limits in the field of cosmology because there, right. there's stuff we don't know, you know, but there's also my own internal limits of my understanding of what we even do know. Um, so at most, I'm only ever going to be 70% convinced that the, the universe began to exist. And it's just... These are my limits. I'm, I tried my best. I was a real seeker. But if you put a mathematical formula in front of me, I'll just, all right, I'm going home. See you later. Um, right, but you see, here's the, this is, uh, I, I can respect all of that. And I don't, I don't disagree with, um, with that at all. So, you know, getting around to back, back around to method, methodology here. Uh, one of the reasons I dismiss um, young earth uh, creationist type, science people um is it's not because i'm saying i know more science than they do uh and it's not merely because they disagree with the consensus now i say merely that's a big thing but that's that's not it either i then have to evaluate well you know i've got this you know the whole the whole crowd uh is going straight and this guy turns left did the did the whole marching band miss a turn uh, so then I've got to uh, I've got to see then. Well, the marching band is being led by the conductor, and the conductor has a map. So why did this guy turn left? Well, he turned left because he heard a voice in his head saying uh, the the answer is left. So I you know without knowing anything else that he says, I can say you know what that's a bad reason to uh, stray from consensus. I'm I'm not really listening to you at this point. And uh, so, in real, realistic terms, someone like uh, Abihi, I know you respect him, so I'm not, I'm not trying to run him down. It's, it's just the name that's easy to come to mind. I could also say he Ross, but he's not a young earther. He's crazy for other reasons. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, somebody, somebody like that, if uh, I'm not ignoring them out of hand because they strayed from the consensus – but when they when I've learned that, OK, the reason they've strayed from consensus is because God and they have a particular view of the Bible that itself may be questionable. Uh, and this is the thing that's uh, taking them in the other direction. I don't have time for that. 
that is that is a bad reason. And if that's if that's your motivation for doing your science, you're a bad scientist. And I even if you happen upon the right answer every now and then, I don't trust you uh, because I don't know enough about the science to know whether you're right and everybody else is wrong or not. But I, if you give me a good science reason for you straying from the um, the consensus uh, that I can follow, sure, I will I will take that in consideration. But if your reason is because uh, you heard voices in your head, screw you. I don't have I don't have the bandwidth for that. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, when I when I stray from the consensus on a number of things like uh, mythicism, for instance, I think that I can make a solid case uh, for why I think the uh, consensus is wrong. And it's and it's not because I don't like Jesus, because I prefer as a uh, as an activist atheist for Jesus to be real. My my arguments, uh, my anti-Jesus arguments are much better <laughs> than than mythicist arguments. I, I have much more fun talking about Jesus as a real person and talking about things that he actually said and did, as opposed to saying, yeah, but he didn't really exist. Uh, so I would much rather um, not be a mythicist. So I'm, a, I'm a reluctant mythicist. Um, but I think I have good reasons for um, distrusting uh, people in the field. I might be wrong, and I don't mind having the label of kook pinned on me. Uh, and I'm certainly not going to put myself up as an expert that someone else should listen to. All I can do is make my best case, and they can they can determine that. But that's the position you're in when you walk away from the consensus if you don't have a good reason, and then your evidence just looks like uh, it's supporting the bias, the the, the idiosyncratic bias that you had. That just all of that spells bad science. I don't even need to look at your results to know that you're not the guy I'm going to follow. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, that, that's actually pretty helpful. Um, and it, it, it makes sense, too, in terms of your other evidences, because earlier you were saying um, the evidence from paleontology, geology is, is more important than the astronomy. And I kind of rebutted that but maybe it's not maybe i need to assess the significant uh, you know do we have a sufficient amount because astronomy planetary science we know a lot less about the solar system than we do um here on the earth where we're able to study it over and over again and that sort of thing so maybe maybe you are right um that one evident one type of evidence is more significant in terms of proving the hypothesis so yeah that that's a that's an important methodological thing that people should be aware of do we have a sufficient amount of evidence to in one field versus another to overturn that field or is our degree of confidence uh in terms of the significance of the evidence uh higher or lower relative to another field so that's actually helpful that's something that i think should be considered if if you're going to be deciding is the solar system designed or is it six thousand years old or something like that so Cool. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Un unfortunately, I, I think we'll have to call it there. And we didn't actually talk about design. So in my blog post, I know that you did not talk about design. You're the originator of this blog post. You're the one who wanted to do this podcast. And so I, I follow that lead. But I did. I was hoping to actually talk about design. too. So I included some things about design uh, in my post that you did not include yours. And so uh, people who want to um follow that, uh, read my blog post. And I recognize that e even though I responded to things that were in Dale's blog post, I did expand the scope of it to include that. And so if you want to have some discussion online, 
uh, with me about that, uh, you can. Uh, it'll it'll be in my uh, blog post, but uh, it it was not a, a part of the conversation that was originally put forth. I just thought that if if we're going to have this discussion, and part of your proof is uh, design versus natural. Uh, that, that we could get into design. So I, I know that you are very busy, maybe uh, at some point over the next uh, few weeks, you can carve out a, uh, an hour or two and we can talk design a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's, uh, so I've got, uh, next next week is very busy. I've got three guest shows. Um, for I guess I'll mention them for those interested. So I, I have Paul Bali coming back. I know he's not a favorite for a lot of the atheists, but um, it's going to be that, a- that's your that's your uh, uh, former instructor. Yeah, but it, yeah. it's okay. on a topic explaining religion. Um, how do we explain it? Natural versus supernatural stuff. So uh, I don't know. Some some people might be interested in, in yeah, that. Yeah, no, topic. I would be interested in that. That's um, that's always a fascinating um, uh, topic. Who yeah. else you got? He's, uh, and he's an expert in Tara's favorite anthropomorphic projection that, you know, the mirror thing. religion is just a mirror. Uh, he, he really wants to talk about that from Fairbach. But um, I also have uh, the famous atheist David Smalley is coming back yeah. on the show. Um, now, I wanted to it's going to be a joint show. So I think he's doing it on your thing. Now, David, I, I kind of betrayed your friendship by accident a bit the last time I was on. Do, do you want me to? like mention it and just apologize and say i shouldn't have said like i can't i, I nah, don't worry about it just said, okay cool <laughs> nah, um, here's look here's the thing we all do podcasts we all write blog posts we're all dicks uh sorry um you know we try not to be just try to have a little bit of uh grace while we work through our dickishness uh if we were truly truly uh well balanced uh mentally and emotionally healthy human beings we wouldn't spend all this time online uh so you knew what we are were when you started listening to us try to have a little grace <laughs> so right. uh, i just wanted to give you that, that choice, I, I feel i owe it to you in front of his audience if you wanted it so yeah right. it's okay all right cool they've, so, they've yeah. forgotten all about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've forgotten who I am. So, uh, but that and that's going to be on the atonement. Uh, so that's something me and you've discussed. Um, but I, I've went into a lot more detail because that's the the full topic. Uh, I'm sure it'll get into the problem of evil again and that sort of thing. But the the main thing is how do we justify penal substitution and, and Jesus dying for us and atoning for our sins on the cross. Um, and then the final show that's going to be recorded on the 15th is with uh, the biblical scholar who I'm really excited about having on, uh, David Instone Brewer. Um, he's been on Unbelievable a few times uh, with Justin, and he, he's the translator of the NIV, one of the translators. Um, but yeah, we're, we're going to be discussing a bunch of issues. So he's a rabbinic scholar. So the New Testament in light of Judaism. So, you know, for example, Jesus mythicism is the first question. But what do the rabbis, because there are Talmudic sources, and David and Stone Brewer said, usually these are just dismissed. They're too late. They're hundreds of years later. Um, well, David and Stone Brewer says, not so fast. They're earlier than most lay people think. Um, so maybe there's proof that a historical Jesus existed in these rabbinic sources. Forget Josephus, forget Tacitus, forget that. Maybe the, the rabbis have something to say. 
um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, how does Jesus relate as the Messiah? How does uh, something on hell, because he was at Chris State's hell conference, and also very important, how do, does the New Testament abolish the Old Testament? How do we make sense of uh, the various commandments and, and that sort of thing? Uh, you know, Christians don't follow the kosher laws or circumc- circumcision. Uh, isn't this a contradiction? So, yeah, those are the, the shows. Yeah, I would be, uh, I'd be interested in that last point anyway. Um, I find the, um, the co-opting uh, of Judaism by Christian, Christians to be an under-discussed uh, subject. Um, it's, it's a little bit like um, Microsoft's old policy of, uh, uh, let's see, embrace, ex- extend, extend, and extinguish. yeah that's okay nerds know um other kinds of nerds uh no (laughs) um so yeah this is this is kind of the um the the christian uh the the kind of the syncretism model period but christians i think perfected with judaism uh embrace extend extinguish uh so much to the point that christians accuse jews of not understanding their own scriptures which i find rich we understand what your ancient scriptures mean but you and even the people who uh wrote them and read them they didn't understand um so yeah it would be it would be interesting to hear that last section that you talked about anyway well i have no uh shows to announce there is a, a possible roundtable. Uh, I, I think that's going to happen. Uh, Marvin and I will make a second appearance, but we will bring friends uh, who will do battle on our behalf while we laugh and watch the bloodshed. Um, is the Marvin thing up now? Just because so, I'm going to go and listen. Not yet. Oh. Um, I, I just finished it last night. And I want to just apologize for any audio uh, issues you hear with it. I had trouble with. Um, I set up last night, and so bad things happen. Apologies. Uh, technically, my season is over, and so all of this is just bonus stuff anyway. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not um, using my regular regular setup, but it'll it'll be posted probably simultaneous uh, with this one, maybe a maybe a hair uh, before. But uh, so that that roundtable though that'll come up um, pretty soon. Uh, I don't know who all the players will be, so I don't have a time frame, but it'll be soon. And um, I think any other shows I have in the works is just going to have to wait until uh, the official start of season three, which is, uh, well, I I would normally say season three starts around the time that American football kicks off. But I don't know what sports is like anymore. Sports is weird. Uh, So that's no longer a reliable time frame to to yeah. use so instead we'll say uh maybe around mid-september okay uh, well, when things pick up again all right all right sounds good so yeah have a, a great week to those in my audience as, as well as to those from from sns uh, some old friends there um have a great week all right bye-bye